Welcome to On the Matter of Systems, uh, a podcast in which are two hosts. Uh, I'm one of them. I'm BW. Uh, my other host is B. Hello, B. Hello. We're talking about a good game. Hi. Yeah, we're talking about a good game. Yeah. So every month, uh, what we do is we talk about some tabletop RPG design and some tabletop RPG theory. This is episode 8.2, which means we're going to talk about design. So we, last time, talked about a series of blog posts by McGay Baker called Follow the Thread, a world-building guide. And uh, this time, no relation at all, but (laughs) we're reading uh, a really interesting book called Ten Candles by Stephen Dewey. A game where you're not allowed to world build, not even a little. (laughs) No, no, zero world building uh, is what is what it should say on page 47. Uh Um, So throw out all of those posts by McGay Baker for this Mm -hmm. game. Mm -hmm. Um, But yeah, so we're going to talk about Ten Candles by Stephen Dewey. And I'm just going to I'm just going to go into it. So Mm -hmm. as a reminder to our dear listeners uh, for our last few episodes for the point two ones, I've been doing a a little series that matters only to me. Uh, in which we play three games that are only related based on my own brain. Uh, so welcome. Uh, but so yeah, last time we talked about Dogs in the Vineyard. This time we're talking about Ten Candles. Uh, these are two of the three games that were sort of the first games I wanted to talk about when you and I started talking about this podcast. Yeah. So that's the reason why. Why don't I talk about what Ten Candles is? So Ten Candles is a role-playing game of tragic horror. The basic, very high-level premise of Ten Candles is that it is a game for one person who will play the role of a GM, and I I believe it's like two to four players, something like that, otherwise. Uh, And it is a game of tragic horror, which means uh, as you go through this game, uh, the GM will be sort of doing what GMs do, setting scenes, etc., calling for roles. The players will be... uh, Uh, sort of going through those scenes. And at the end, everyone dies. Um, So this is kind of where I thought uh, we could start with the description because it's kind of core to what this game is. So this is not a survival horror game, right? This is not a game of people overcoming the odds. This is tragic horror. Uh, Dewey makes this very, very clear. Um, And I think a a pretty good way right at the beginning. I really like the overview. Um, but the basic idea is you you go through these scenes, uh, you roll some dice, and you tell the story of these survivors after a sort of apocalyptic event, and you narrate them going through a, a bunch of rounds of scenes, and then at the end, everybody sort of narrates their own death. Some of the big cool things, we're going to talk about a lot of stuff in detail, but uh, it's called Ten Candles because uh, one of the main mechanics is a timing mechanic that is... Uh, based around uh, 10 physical candles. So um, the way you're supposed to play this game is you light 10 tea lights uh, as you go through character creation. And then um, what Dewey recommends is that you play as much as possible uh, solely via the light of the candles. Um, As you progress through the scenes, roll dice, succeed or fail, etc., candles will get snuffed out. Um, which then change like has mechanical implications, right? So it changes things as you go through. And then after sort of the final uh, candle is uh, put out, then the end of the game happens, which is where everyone dies. There's a lot more to talk about, which we're going to talk about in terms of like specific mechanics. But how, how is that be for like a, a pretty high level? Only take? thing I would uh, correct on is it is a two to five player game, according to the rules. So, two to five player game. Yeah, okay, a cool. five pl- person... T- 10 Candles game is a thing I've done, and it's a lot, uh, but it's doable. Yeah. 
Um, yeah, it seems it seems like it would be it could get long um, for sure. Uh, yeah. There will be some anecdotes in which I explain over the course of this uh, this <laughs> episode that um, hi listener, I have run and played in Ten Candles maybe a half dozen times. It was one of the most played games for me. Um, period. I think I hadn't nice. really thought about that until just now, but I believe that to be true. Cool. Ten Candles can go real fucking long. <laughs> yeah. Um, I've had games last six hours, even though it says like two to three. But that is also true of literally every game I've ever played that says two to three hours. So, yeah, yeah. <laughs> cool. Well, and I guess uh, that's a that's a good reminder. That was one of the other reasons, wh- like why Ten Candles ended up on my initial list of games, was because I knew you had some familiarity with it in terms of running it, um, and I did not have familiarity with it. Yeah. Um, so final thing I'll do is just talk a little bit about Stephen Dewey. Yeah. So um, Stephen Dewey is the designer of this game. Uh, Ten Candles is, uh, I think, arguably sort of his what he's most famous for um, as a designer. Mm-hmm. But he runs he runs a sort of game publishing company called Cavalry Games. He's uh, he does like a bunch of um, professional GM and DM services, which I always think is just like cool that that's that's a thing that people have figured out how to do. Yeah. Um, I think that's rad. He's he's de- definitely done some other games. Uh, to Serve Her Wintry Hunger is one that I have skimmed, but don't know too much about. Um, he did a Kickstarter, I want to say it was 2021, maybe, for um, a game called Gather Children of the Evertree. But yeah, he he's interested in playing and making games that make him uh, feel things is sort of the, the thing I have seen attached to his name various places. But yeah, so... Since this is a tragic horror game, I thought maybe we take a couple seconds at least at the beginning and talk a little bit about any of our sort of relationship to the genre. Um, I'll go first. Mine's pretty short. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I spend a lot of my type, uh, life overwhelmed and scared of the world. So I don't really care for horror most of the time. <laughs> I don't need more <laughs> things to scare me. Uh-huh. I, the The closest I get is, is like weird stuff like capital w weird fiction stuff the 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 go-to for me is like one of my favorite novels of all time is perdido street station by china miaville um yes i love that book i've read it just an embarrassingly high number of times probably like seven (laughs) at least um i just love that book it is completely unsettling and uh not super fun to read i think for a lot of folks which i forget when i recommend it to people um but i love it i love that book a lot and it's like it's pretty unsettling but it's not like it's not horror for sure there are like horrific things in it but it is not the genre horror um and i just don't i just i just haven't really like intersected with horror much at all um so what about you opposite end (laughs) um i was literally yesterday just going through uh, at work is kind of slow, and I just was going through the filmography of Wes Craven and just being like, this is a good one. This one was, you know, kind of middling to my coworker because I've seen, <laughs> I've seen almost all of his movies. I think I'm still missing uh, one, his like third direct TV movie. Uh, I think I just never found that one. Um, the one that's not Stranger in Our House or uh, Night Visions, but the one between that or invitation to hell i've seen all those great movies uh love 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 horror film especially um i think that's probably my biggest thing everything you know from from pop west craven all the way through fucking uh you know just straight up 70s exploitation shit you know 50s sci-fi horrors is a is a fun little thing for me every every now and again 
um, you know, new extreme shit in Japan and Korea is like kind of how I got into film in the first place. Anyway, and then for horror literature, I'm 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 not huge on horror literature, but I quite like it. Um, you know, give me some good body horror. Uh, I mm. love. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, love a good body horror. Uh, you know, I'm I'm one of those transes. <laughs> you know, <laughs> um, the body is strange and alien, and seeing it depicted in strange and alien ways uh, rubs my brain the correct way. Um, yeah, there's there's a there's a I would say there's a decent chunk of that in Perdido. <laughs> yeah, hundred percent. I also read pretty. I think I've read all of Mayville's fiction at some oh, point. Cool. You can you can look up. Uh, God, was it a new inquiry review I did for Rail C back when that came oh, out? Wow. That was fun. I forgot about that. Yeah. yeah. Which 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 part of that sentence? Because <laughs> I think I think was all forgettable in some uh, way. Rail C. You no. Know, me I, me as a writer. The new inquiry. I like Rail C. Um, <laughs> Rail C was good. It was it yeah, was good. Uh, but I just yeah, you writing for the new inquiry, you reviewing China Mayville. I just it feels like a different world. <laughs> It yeah. was. It was a different. It was. I was certainly not the same person, but um, yeah. So my my capsule horror thing is like love film. Um, fuck with the with literature. I mean, I've also been reading Stephen Graham Jones a lot over the last couple of years, and that man can write a fucking book. Like, yeah, he's fun. He's uh, everyone who fucks with horror should uh, should find the right Stephen Graham Jones book for you, because uh, the man. The man has such a good understanding of structure. And also, I'm not a person who gets scared by horror. I think that's also an important thing mm-hmm. to say. I'm not like, I like, I don't, uh, jump scares rarely work on me, that type of shit. Stephen Graham Jones is one of the only people I've like had to put a book down because I was like, fuck, oh, well. you, you, whoa, 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 yeah. hold wow. on. <laughs> but yeah, um, so largely speaking, love horror, have a lot of friends who are also very into horror, um, who are the people I've mostly played this with. So uh, that's a helpful overlap. As yeah, well. for sure. Well, and I mean, I guess it's worth saying then on my end, like the part of what drew me to this game was specifically that it was like this thing that I don't really care about, right? Like that, like, this is <laughs> just a genre that like, I've mostly just bounce off of because um, I understand. So like, I've, I've, you know, I've, read a bunch of people who write about horror in really intelligent ways, right? Like, I I, I know critics who care about horror. Mm-hmm. And so part of it was just me being like, I'm very curious what this does in tabletop RPGs, right? Like, what horror can do. Um, and specifically, the tragic part of this I found really fascinating, right? Yeah. Like, totally. that the 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 default is like survival horror because it's a story of overcoming right it's a story of whatever um and so i just i figured that that could be a little stinger <laughs> there of like that that my, for me part of the appeal was this is a thing that i'm not actually super drawn to but i'm very drawn to like tabletop rpgs and so i want to see <laughs> how you handle this thing and how you do this thing um and just because i like to understand how rpgs work basically yeah, and then just on a small personal note, also, like, I guess two quick things. One of the reasons I love horror films so much, as a person who doesn't particularly get scared by them, um, is, is horror allows filmmakers to do things that they wouldn't do in, in realism. Um, you know, Suspiria is, like, the number a number one example for this, right? You, d- you put it in a witch place, 
because then you can just turn whole rooms red because weird shit is happening. And so you could just look at somebody being lit by a weird red <laughs> light, right? Or blue. And then fucking Goblin is just banging around in the background, uh, <laughs> making dope sounds. And then the other small, like, just little uh, personal thing is um, you actually bought me my copy of this game a, a million That's years true. ago. Um, I think I th- we talked about this. I think it's just because I, like, saw it somewhere and tweeted about it. And I was like... Somebody, somebody give me this game. I really want it, and I'm poor. And then, like, a week later, it showed up at my house, and I was like, oh, what? Yeah, yeah this was, uh, I think this was, like, this, I think this was when I was sort of starting to understand that I had somehow fallen into a, a job in tech, and so I would just mm-hmm. randomly buy friends things occasionally because I had money mm-hmm. a little bit. Um, yeah. That's no longer true, unfortunately, but, yeah, yeah. we're figuring that out. <laughs> Um, yeah. Cool. Well, what do you? I mean, we've kind of talked about it a little bit. We've spoiled. We spoiled the next section, which is what do you think? <laughs> but hey, what do you think? Yeah, I, I love it. I love this game. Honestly, um, coming back to it and just doing a read for this show rather than uh, to run it has really illuminated certain things about it to me that we'll get to as we get there. But like historically, I've had so much fun with this game. Um, still reading it still, I'm still just, like, so enamored of the concept uh, and of certain aspects of it. Like like you said, like, tragic horror is such a, it's such a compelling term, um, and I, I don't think I've ever seen it used anywhere else, and I don't really know where else you could use it like i I had that i had this exact thought earlier today actually which was like (laughs) you know i haven't actually seen this anywhere else and also yeah where would would you call like if a horror movie everyone died that's kind of just a horror movie yeah like it's not (laughs) so Uh that's very interesting but like well so and this is the interesting thing right that uh the the comparison is to survival yeah. horror, uh, a video game genre, not uh, not a, a film genre, Correct. right? And so, like theoretically, tragic horror, you could you could maybe theoretically do tragic horror in, in video games, but like they're also survival horror is so inventory management focused yeah. <laughs> that like th- that this game is not anyway. That all blew me away the first time I read it. It continues to blow me away through today. There, the thing I know about this game that I wouldn't know if I hadn't played it a bunch um, is it's it's extremely funny, like, and maybe that's just because I play games with very funny you play, people. You play but games like, with very funny people. I think this. I think yeah, this game could be super not funny with the right group. <laughs> I get. I I believe that, but I've never experienced. Well, it. <laughs> and I I am saying this, listeners. You don't. You won't have context for most. But like I am saying this, knowing who you play games with, every yes, game you yeah. play is going to end up being very funny, <laughs> just because yes. of, of who you tend to be at a table with. Yes, I mean, uh, very quick anecdote up top, right? Um, or, or to clarify that, that doesn't mean we also don't hit horror beats um, in that in that hilarious six hours or whatever that we're playing this game. But like, like it, it still does effectively produce spooky shit, but like, you know, um, the, like the time that me and I think it was Ricky and Sharmi and Keishi were playing and Sharmi was playing as, uh, shit. I can't remember if Sharmi was playing as Chad or Brad, but just Sharmi was just playing this fucking like, like jock, like fucking frat boy. Uh, and like three quarters of the way through the game, we we're like, it's spooky, but it's also, we're a little tired. 
And I think Charmy revealed that, like, Chad's, like, maybe it might have been literally a moment that didn't come up till fairly late or something like that. But, like, it, I think it was something like a moment where, like, Chad wants to, like, find, like, the love of his life or, like, he wants to kiss somebody or something like that. And so I just rolled in with a character named Brad, just doing the exact same mm-hmm. voice. And it was just like, just, you know, big boisterous frat boy, like, making out in the middle of this tragic horror game. And it was just fun. It's just fun and funny. And then my sort of final big thought uh, is that this time reading through it, I was like, this game has a thesis. <laughs> I have a thesis about this game. We've never done this before. <laughs> Hell yeah. What's your thesis? My thesis is that this game is about ritual. And I think that this game makes the argument that tabletop roleplay is itself a kind of ritual. Interesting. And my supporting arguments will be sort of the rest of this (laughs) show on my end. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I think uh, uh, we're going to talk about it a lot more. But like, I think in general, that the first part, I'm just on board with. It, this is clearly a game about ritual, right? We're, we're going to talk about it soon. But like, literally, the way you create characters involves uh, sort of a ritual lighting of a certain number of candles to sort of progress yeah. through, right? Like, it's very, it very much is about ritual. I'm pretty sympathetic to the idea of all tabletop RPGs are in some way about ritual. Um, but I'm curious to see how it develops. Yeah. Um, um well, what about uh, you? so i like this book uh i like this game <laughs> this book gave me some <laughs> some problems um yeah. which yes. is i think sort of a good way of kind of getting into it so just very high level of like how this game is laid out right so the the book basically has uh three chapters that basically cover character creation that's called here there is light um here there is shadow is the second chapter um which is or section, uh, which is basically the conflict. It's the the primary sort of like mechanics of the game. Um, and then here there is darkness, which is a, a, a pretty long section that is specifically for the GM. So uh, we, we've talked a bunch before. We have a bunch of stuff we're going to talk through um, about each of those sections. But to start, we, we kind of had some like overall thoughts about the book. So I, uh, before we get there, I, I really like this uh, game. I think Ten Candles is fascinating. I think it's really clever at a bunch of different places. I think, like, it's a really... I mean, even just the just literally the simple thing of it being tragic horror is just already enough to make me, like, love it. Just because it's that's such a mm-hmm. good, solid premise and, like, so interesting. And, like, what that does at the table and what that does to play and what that does for players, I think, is all really fun to think about. I think for for me, I ended up with some issues mostly on like f- like flavor text and instruction and actual play stuff. Um, for me, a lot of my frustrations are more organizational than anything else because the game itself seems rad. I mean, this will come as no surprise to listeners. I don't really intend to ever play this. Um, <laughs> I, it, I just think, I mean, I right now, especially, God, I right now, this would be a very bad game for me to play. Mm-hmm. But, like, I think even if I was in, like, a really super good place and blah, 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 like, it's just not, I'm not interested in telling this kind of story with my friends, I don't think. But that's just mm-hmm. a person, like, that's not because I think the game is bad or that's not even, has nothing to do with my frustrations about organization of the book. It's just a not a, a good fit for me. I think it's, I think it's really genuinely very clever and, and super smart uh, at various points. 
Yeah. But I, I kind of thought maybe we start with a couple of our sort of overall things. So I, I thought it was interesting reading this coming off of our last point two episode, Dogs in the Vineyard. <laughs> just just because there's like there's some real similarities in terms of the the way that Dewey moves between sort of speaking to particular audiences sort of the mode of speaking so similar to dogs right there's like there's text where it's just like i'm going through the mechanics of the game but then there's also pretty long at times actual play sections that i ended up finding it really interesting that a lot of those actual play sections have like pretty strong like instructional elements in them it seems like to me yes whereas 100 right like so um it the way I tend to think of these things are you you have your sort of plain text and then you have your italicized text. And what the italicized text does is it goes, okay, you've read the plain text for the mechanics. Now we're going to kind of show you it in play. And one of the things I noticed immediately was it felt like I would read the plain text and then I would start reading the actual play. And then like the GM in the actual play would sometimes make a choice or would talk about a thing in a certain way. And I'd be like, oh, is that is this instructional or are you giving like an option? Because it feels like you maybe are like adding on a new wrinkle to the previous mechanic or something. So that was just like one of my big high level things was I I found the use of actual play text in this really interesting. And I found specifically who it's speaking to interesting. There's a, there's a very explicit GM section in this book, Mm -hmm. but I also mostly think this book is written for the GM as well. Um, but sometimes it feels like it's not, maybe. <laughs> so, I, yeah, I'm, I mean, I'm curious if, if you noticed this or what you noticed. Um, well, should we just pull out the, the example of the hit information yeah, thing yeah, here? We can just, like, yeah, very quickly? Sure. Yeah. Um, so, so this is interesting. Because I, I also, as you mentioned, there's sort of three big headers with like little chapters within them. There's a, the here's the light, here's the shadow, here's the darkness. Um, each one also has a little thing, little, a little tagline. So for here there is light, the tagline is read on survivors, there are no secrets here. So it's explicitly saying, like, anyone who's playing this game can and maybe should read this portion, right? But there's a... There's a thing that happens around page, like, 9 and, and 12, where they give you information, or they, they're ta- talking to you about this mechanic called traits, which are basically, like, you know, something good and something bad about your character. And then you write these down. Um, and then when it's saying that in the plain text, it just says, write them down, pass one to the left and one to the right. Then a couple pages later, it goes to the actual play. Um, and we have this very long setup and discussion between the, the GM and the players who, this is one of those books that has like an, on, an ongoing thread through the actual play. So it's basically like takes you th- through a single session of the game rather than giving you a bunch of different possible examples. In the in the actual play portion, the GM seems to be indicating to the players that they are writing down character their vice and their virtue for themselves or for their for their own characters, and then surprises them at the end by saying, "Actually, you're going to have to pass those to the left and the right now." Yeah, which I didn't love. <laughs> um, but mostly, it just it, I mean it brought up the the question I've been bringing up, right? Which is like, I don't yeah. I don't know exactly what to do with that then uh, because. The hidden information is part of this game in some ways, right? Yeah. 100%. But it's also, it, it's one of the things that, to me, so to me, right, personally, I'm just not a fan of hidden information in games in general. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm not 
adamantly opposed to it necessarily, but like that's not where my interest lies, right? I've I've said a, a billion times to you and maybe on this podcast, but like one of the reasons why I love Friends at the <laughs> Table is because it is lit. It's the table, and like they take that seriously, right? So like half of my enjoyment of whatever, playing a board game, playing a tabletop RPG with people is talking about it and talking about what we're doing. Like the table talk is fun for me. That's not that's not bad metagaming. I want to know what we're thinking. I want right. to talk about what we're doing. I just find that interesting. And so like, that's just, you know, again, personal preference, whatever, right? But the fact that it, when hidden information comes up in this game, it seems to be both that you could hide it or you couldn't hide it. But I would, I, I guess I would like it, I would like Dewey to be like, this is what you should do from the perspective of the system. Because it feels very, yeah. it feels like in play, it would, it would be very different to be told you are, you need to write a virtue and a vice and then you're going to pass them versus write a virtue and a vice. Ha ha. Now you don't get to keep them. <laughs> um, and it just, they, neither yeah. of them is bad or good, right? Like it's just, they're very, they feel very different and they feel so different to me that I was sort of taken aback that it kept happening being like, oh, that's interesting. Oh, okay. Well then is this hidden or is this not? Right, and the, and and it goes farther later on, right? With like the like one of the char- one of the players in, ends up writing a the thing called a brink for the basically the GM controlled villains of the story, and so that like gives one of the players a ton of power in, in like not just knowing what some aspect of it's just called them with a capital T what them are, but like literally also they just like help define it, and that's just part of. You know, this is spiraling into another conversation, so I'll, I'll pull back from that in a, for a sec. But, like, that one is, like, very explicitly, this is hidden information. Yeah. And then I think that does, I think the same thing happens, right? It, does it come up in the actual play section where, like, somebody's like, well, what's stopping me from just telling everyone at the table that, like, what I know about them? And the answer is, like, nothing, really. I mean, just, just as long as you're playing your character, like, as long as the character you're playing would tell them, like, that's totally yeah. fine. So it, yeah, it it does do a thing repeatedly where it's like, here's some hidden information, but when we're playing, we actually might just tell you might just tell everybody. <laughs> um, and, and this is the sort of thing where like, uh, this is obviously sticking out because I'm me and I'm I pay attention to hidden information stuff, right? But like, mm-hmm. it is just very interesting that it, to me at least, it feels like a pretty a pretty major change whether people know certain things or don't know certain things kind of going into the game. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's also worth saying just like part of what I love about games in general is that they are like a pretty explicitly negotiated space in which like we know what we're doing. We all understand why we're here. Like I like that clarity. Mm-hmm. And so part of it is just, that's why I don't <laughs> care about game information really. Um, sure. But uh, again, like I don't, uh, uh, this isn't, you know, I'm not trying to say this is like a, ha ha, we got Dewey. Um, it, right. <laughs> and, the, and the more I've thought about it, the more interested I actually am in in this particular ambiguity, right? Which is like, you know, I'm going to talk about stuff in this book that I found a little confusing or that maybe didn't quite sort of click together for me. And I want to be super clear that like my take on all of this is like, I- I'm interested in it, right? Like half the time if I read a book and I'm like, oh, that didn't work for me. Weird. Huh? How do you put those together my inclination is to be like i wish i could just write the person and say what did you do and i could do that but i'm lazy um right but uh, <laughs> like for me it the more i have thought about this the more i find the ambiguity itself kind of interesting 
But when I tried to put myself in the position of like, oh, I want to run a game of 10 candles for some friends. I was like, oh, I guess I wouldn't actually know exactly what I would want to do or why I would make which choice, if that makes sense. Yeah. And and I, I, I for my part, I will say I've had people like I've done the thing where I'm like, OK, now you're going to you're going to put the virtue to the left and mm-hmm. your vice to the right. And people go, what? Um, and I've had like I've had instances where people, you know, the other side of this, right, is like all of a sudden you have two prompts for a character. And like if if it just so happens that you get you get the right couple. I've had this happen before. Oh, I've had somebody cool. like light the yeah. fuck up. After the after the change, they're like, "Oh shit! I can make this kind of character that I never thought of making before." Um, and then I've had people just be like, "Okay, I guess I'm going to be this character who I always am, but with this vice and virtue this time, and that's fine." And then I've you know I've also played it with the same people enough that like I want to say I don't know if this is a completely true memory, but I want to say at some point I had people just being like, "Okay, so we know we're going to pass these yeah, to the left totally. and the right. Yeah, so yeah, what yeah. do you want?" <laughs> <laughs> well, and, I mean, uh, this is actually a, a pretty specific thing I was going to bring up here, which is he explicitly says for, I think it's for the brink. He explicitly says in the the text, like, oh, you know, you could pull, just pull the person aside and figure this out with them. Yeah. Which he, oh, really? which he doesn't say for traits. <laughs> uh, so we're using a lot of big proper nouns. Um, so may, maybe, maybe I yes. pause us yeah, and yeah. I, I do my sort of intro for like, here are the mechanics high level of the game. So uh, I'm going to read because I actually think the overview is like really very good. So this is from page four. It's how you must prepare. Um, and so this is well, this will get us into some of the details. Uh, and it's also going to give us a chance to talk about some of the details that I didn't bring up already. So uh, you will need the following items to play. Ten tea light candles with something to light them. A pack of index cards. Some black markers. Woo! 10 six-sided dice of one color, a handful of six-sided dice, one per player of another color, a fireproof bowl, Mm -hmm. and and a voice recorder. Yeah, let's go. Most smartphones have a built-in voice recorder, et cetera. Mm. Um, 10 candles is played around a table in the dark. Ideally, the only light you will play by are the tea light candles. The darker you can make your play area, the better. Place the bowl in the center of the table and the candles in a circle around it. Give five index cards and a marker to each player. The GM will need an index card as well. And then you put the dice down. So that's the that's the table setup, right? Which I think is is important because like, th- as you said, this game is about ritual, yes. right? And so the, like, Im- imagine in your head, uh, it is a table and there is a fireproof bowl. Maybe it's metal. Maybe it's made of clay. And around it are 10 tea lights that will soon be lit. Uh, and then a bunch of dice, <laughs> which is cool. And so basically, yeah, the there is a GM, as we've said, and then there are players. So just let's say there's three players for our example. So the each of the three players will be playing a, a character. So they will you, you will go through a character creation process, um, and you'll be playing specific characters as you go through. And the sort of basic high level steps are: you go through the character creation process, you then play things out over a series of scenes. Candles will be darkened, as as we've said. There's a whole big conflict resolution mechanic. And you, you sort of... 
It is. It's cool. It's um, cool. And basically, at the end of scenes, there are things that trigger you to darken candles. You then switch into sort of the interlude. So in between each scene, there's a, a part where you change scenes and everyone speaks a truth. So you establish truths of the world. Um, and then you move forward to the next scene until you are at the last candle, which uh, brings up the last, the last conflict or the last stand, I think it's called. So the characters that you make, which is where I think we're going to start, are made up of three proper nouns. So um, they're they're made of more than that. But the the three big proper nouns for this game are traits, moment, and brink. So each character will have a trait. Uh, they have two traits. You have a sort of positive and a negative called a virtue and a vice. Um, each character will have a moment. Uh, which is an event that sort of you set out at this, you you basically set an intention at the beginning of the game for your character. And the moment is a chance for your character to find hope in the sort of this dark world. And then brinks are sort of, they're like traits, but they're hidden. And, And the brinks are sort of your character being pushed to the limit and sort of what you will do when you're, you know, you're at the end of the rope, et cetera. And so as you go through the scenes, you roll dice, and then you can also use your trait or your moment or your brink. And they do different things, which we'll go into. But the the basic idea of this is you can use the, the index cards that you have, you know, put these things on and you literally set them on fire. And so, so this is character creation. You are basically um, coming up with both for yourself and for other people at the table, uh, these concepts or sort of character traits that then can be used during play uh, that you will literally set on fire, hence the fireproof bowl. So why don't we kind of talk through briefly kind of each of these? Because I think we have something to say on maybe most of them or maybe only traits but um i think talking through traits will will get us into it so uh, we've already discussed this some right so the first step of character creation is you're writing out your traits so you take two of your index cards and you you write a positive a virtue and a negative which is a vice and like we've said you will be writing these on two different index cards and then you will be passing them to your left and your right so traits are not something you you make for your own character. Uh, Moments, you do make for your character. So your moment, you will write for your own character. Um, So like I said, that's a a place for you to find hope. So it can be things like, I found hope when we found a stash of guns in the police station, as I think one of the examples from the actual play. Yes, exactly. And then the brinks are similar to the traits, They, they, you are writing them for other people, right? So you are writing them for somebody to your... I believe left. So you will be writing the brink for the person on your left. And what you do with all of these index cards at the end is cool, <laughs> right? Which I think you wanted to talk about, which is you you stack them. So yes. you, you are literally creating a stack of index cards that you can use to, as I said, burn and, mm-hmm. you know, re-roll dice, etc. Yeah. And the reason the stack is important is because you only have access to the top card at any given time. Um, So if you say, if you put your moment up front, you're basically saying, I'm not going to necessarily explore or be able to use at least my vice and my virtue until I have gone through my moment. And and 
um, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Um, the only thing is the brink does have to be at the very bottom because you have yeah. to sort of like gotten out your character into the world before you can hit that low point, I guess, is the sort of theory as, as expressed in the book. Yeah, which I think is really cool. Like, I think I, I think it's very interesting. Th- like, the last step of character creation is the stacking, which I could see this, like, I was thinking about this earlier, I could see this going other ways, right? Like, I could have seen this play out where you are making your stack as you go, for instance, right? Like, you you are making decisions about the order of things without the full information, right? Like, you need to, you could have, like, had to call, like, well, this is going to be my second trait, and this will be my first trait, or whatever, Mm-hmm. And instead, you get everything, including the things that you didn't make yourself from everybody. And the way I at least read it in the book was, this is a, this is meant to take a little bit of time, right? It's not like it should be, you know, 30 minutes or something. But right. like, <laughs> thinking about these is is pretty important, because we can talk about this more, but like they, they are used in different ways, right? So they have different effects. You can use them at different times. Right. Which I was impressed by because it's only four things, <laughs> really. Yeah, right? like totally. You, it, you get two traits, you get a positive and negative, you get your moment and you get your brink. And like, that is it. And the brink is always at the bottom. So it's like a pretty limited decision space. Yeah. But it still felt like it could be pretty impactful, I feel like. Completely, yeah. And that's actually uh, something I was kind of curious, just because you've played through this. Like, how has the stack felt in play? Um, so, yeah, to your point, it's a, it's a fairly, you have, <laughs> okay, maybe sort of backing up and speaking sort of systemically, right? Mm-hmm. These cards are effectively all of the resources you have and all of your, like, character, your, like character creation or like um yeah there's there's basically one other index card that you use during character creation which is just it's just your like your character concept which is it's supposed to be like a a description a look and like a a A phrase or something a sentence maybe yeah yeah so this is a game where you you have very few resources to start right Mm -hmm. um and i have definitely seen people play in, in the way that i probably would be inclined to which is you know i've grown up playing role-playing games and, and survival horror games i'm the kind of person who has 99 potions 99 ethers etc etc in my inventory like from the moment i can till the moment i stop playing because you have so few resources i've, I've definitely seen people play and go like I, well i don't know if i want to use that right now because i only have like three times to use these re-rolls that seem pretty powerful yeah and so I've had people fucking end the game without burning two cards, right? Wow, really? Interesting. Yeah, because, yeah, like, you know, part of it's like, uh, you know, you can just not see the right moment, right? And that's probably partially on me, right? <laughs> it's like not pushing ahead. But, like, what the main thing I've learned from playing this game versus, like, what I would probably naturally do or think is, like, Burn early, burn often. Like yeah, for sure. You when when you want to re-roll and you're like, maybe I should save it. Do it, just do it. Fucking burn that yeah. shit. <laughs> yeah. Well, and uh, so there's. I guess we're kind of we're kind of merging into here the the sort of primary mechanic stuff, which yeah. is fine, right? Because like one of the things that occurred to me when reading this is so if we talk about the the actual 
like conflict mechanic. There's a lot of, there's a lot of detail we can go into, but the very high level thing I want to say is essentially in a scene, right? Players talk, they talk about what they're doing, what the characters are doing, etc. And then at some point the GM's going to be like, "Aha, this sounds like a conflict." Uh-huh. <laughs> um, and basically, it it could go that in a scene, the very first conflict somebody just fails and decides mm-hmm. not to burn a trait. And then you're, you, the first candle is out and you're, okay, you now only have nine chances to, like you have nine more chances possibly to use any of these traits. Yep. Um, so like this game can go, I think could go really long, but I also think this game could go pretty quickly if you burn traits, like, or, you know, if you burn your resources, essentially. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, so this makes me want to get to like the conflicts and scenes and stuff. So they hear there is shadow, the next kind of big section. So um, why don't we talk a little bit about if there's anything else in character creation? I have one thing, which I'll, I'll talk about. I don't think it'll take yeah. very long, but yeah, that's fair. We, we talked about the traits, right? And so the traits uh, you, you have two traits, a virtue and a vice. Um, mm-hmm. The, the right. vice language is pretty weird. I, like, I get it from a sort of naming convention in terms of virtues and vice make sense. It's like sticks in a player's brain. And and I don't even actually think like the initial introduction of virtues and vices is all that bad. Virtues should solve more problems than they create. Uh, this is on page nine. And vices should create more problems than they solve. Yeah. Like, I actually really like that writing. I think that's really, absolutely like super, super clever, super short, but also really uh, makes it clear. Uh, but then, like, some of the examples for vices, like, some of them are things like afraid, greedy, addictive. Mm-hmm. But then, like, on page 10, some of the other vices are asthmatic or blind. And, like, nah, those aren't nah. vice. Those aren't vices. They, they, no. are abs- they are absolutely things that would create more problems in an, a post-apocalyptic wa- wasteland with no light or whatever. But... It just uh, it felt weird to even that even <laughs> yeah. then like I don't know that blind hits that like y- yeah like it's, uh, it 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 doesn't do the thing that I feel like vices are wanting to do and it does something very different than uh, addicted does right mm-hmm. so that that part I think kind of still rubs me the wrong way a little bit um, and like if I was if I was going to run this like I I would seriously consider using a word that wasn't vice to be honest just because like i, I do think it's interesting to bring in to, like, right like bring in different abilities bring in like whatever people ha- with different sight levels etc like all those things seem totally fine to bring in and explore but like that's hey, just not a vice it's just not a vice <laughs> um no so, you, yeah you should ab- like playing an asthmatic character sounds very interesting and it and there are things that like that 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 affords for and stuff like that but like yeah framing it as like this is an inherent thing about you that is going to make life more difficult is like i don't know man like that's yeah (laughs) yeah and and for me a lot of it really comes down to like i think there are i think to me the biggest thing is like i just calling something like a physical like disability of a vice just feels yes. just feels bad like it just yep. feels bad <laughs> period which i just didn't i wouldn't have felt super good going the entire episode without saying that cuz it it really that's one of the only things in this book that truly i'm just like i just wish this was different <laughs> right yeah um, i just wish this <laughs> well, language was different <laughs> i mean my like sub thesis for this book is like 
Give me a give me a give me a two e. Uh, there's oh sure yeah. There's just organizational stuff in this book that like like this book doesn't have an index. Um, it could I, really, I know it could really use an index. I don't even check for indexes most of the time because I rarely use them. This book needs an index, and it could have such a good index. Like it could have such a useful thing because like okay, so just still staying in character creation, right? One of the things that I love about this book is like, there's a handful of like mantras that sort of come up and they're mostly through, uh, you know, the very early stuff in character creation, right? The one of them is like, you know, remind everyone that like, remind everyone early and often that like, though your character is going to die, you must play them or you must have hope that they, they can survive. Right. That's like a core tenant of the book that comes up multiple times. It's a thing that it's like really like laid into like, Hey, this is how tragic horror works. Like this is the this is how you say this to yourself, and that's how you get into the tragic horror mindset, right? There's a thing you mentioned the truths. That's a little later, um, so I won't like go into that there. But like, there there are structural aspects of this book that like you need to be able to quickly reference when you're playing. Mm-hmm. And how could one possibly solve that question? It's impossible, yeah. right? <laughs> yeah, like, and, and it, I mean, it is worth saying in, indexes take a lot of work. That it's, it, it's totally very real labor. Uh, so yes. I, I, I get that for sure. But like, I, I just, I was uh, like, not to bring up dogs again, right? But like, I was really missing the last page or two of each of the chapters in Dogs, in which D. Vincent Baker would go like, okay, we've gone through this stuff. I've talked through it. I've given you some actual play. So you've seen how it might play out. Now, here's what character creation is. Just a couple pages summarizing. Um, yes, 100%. Which I-, I think those kinds of reference stuff could be really helpful, uh, like in a second edition or something, for sure. Yeah. And the game, I mean, you know, whatever. Stephen Dewey's a, a whole-ass person who is pursuing yes. his own interests and, and doing things. I think there's a market for a second edition of this game. I think uh, I think it would do quite well, given that, you know, it's it seems to be one of the bigger success stories in independent role-playing games um just yeah i I guess i i think i skipped over it uh in my earlier thing but oh yeah i did but it was yeah it was released in 2015 it was nominated for four ennies in 2016 like it it came out and like really made a splash which makes sense it's great yeah uh yeah anything else in the character (laughs) creation stuff um yeah i'm i'm actually just gonna read out my full the full thing I wrote uh, for my thesis, if, mm-hmm. if you don't mind, so I can so I can touch on one other point. So what I wrote when I was taking notes, uh, hand wrote it actually. I was taking notes in a notebook, reading a physical game. What a what a world, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so I wrote this is a game about ritual, not just in the obvious ways. For example, candles, mantras, a clear ending parameter that is enunciated but in the way that it codifies aleatory elements, like guttering or wind, um, increasing centralization of the narrative, and different layers of knowledge that are hidden. We haven't really gotten to the things like the increasing centralization of the narrative, that, that and that we'll be talking about later. We talked about the differing layers of knowledge that are hidden, obviously. And then, so my subpoint is, to that point, this is a game about how tabletop role-playing games are ritual. And then I have another subpoint <laughs> that is... But is it? Because the modules are all prompts for adventure. And I'm, and I'm not talking about the modules yet. We'll get there. But the other thing that's all prompt, that's all very adventure focused are the, are the actual play sections, which is another thing that we, you know, we kind of touched on. It's, it's a little weird how the actual play bounces off of the plain text in, in very specific ways. But for me, the big thing, and this is again, a lot in character creation, but also elsewhere, like, 
the the actual play we read is about a police officer, like a soldier and a mysterious drifter or something. Uh, yeah, an it. army reserve person, a sergeant, and a mysterious drifter with a dark past. That's a fucking D&D crew. Like, <laughs> so much happening in the game, uh, like the, pro- the plain text, as we're calling it here, is really doubling down on this element of ritual. Games is ritual. This game, sorry, this game is a ritual. Games is rituals. And then all of the examples it gives are like, I'm going to bust down a door and get a bunch of guns and shoot stuff real good. And I was like, there is a there is inherent tension here. And the reason I bring this up right now, right? It's because we're talking about things. You mentioned that like the Vice thing was like the only thing you would change about this game. I... I think the actual play with a sergeant, a soldier, and a and a drifter is a useful thing here. I wish it had taken the other direction that a lot of games do with actual play, where it doesn't just have one actual play running straight through the whole thing, but given a bunch of different options. Like, here's some new characters in, in a different situation, and so... Cause, because you can play this game like an action adventure game also. Yeah. This is where everyone dies. <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, I think that that change would also possibly help some of my like reading issues in terms of uh, the disjunction between uh, I think the fact that the actual play is one actual play split across the whole book also does for me at least feel like okay, well this is intentional. I should be learning from this. And so I think like I would maybe find kind of the disjunction sometimes between the plain text and the italicized text, maybe even less confusing if it was different examples where I could be like, oh, okay, so here's a, here's a few different GMs handling this in different ways or whatever. Yeah. And that's, that is like the choice of just not even speaking to this game in general or specifically, but in general, like that is one of the, the, the choice of, of, of form matters, right? We, yeah. we know this. Yeah. Yeah. One of the things that you are getting when you decide that the way you're going to do actual play is just one single thing running through is you create something that feels like a canonical play of the game. Correct. Yeah. Rather than, yeah, yeah, a a series of options. And sometimes that's what you need because, you know, whatever, for whatever reason, your game needs like an example. I don't think this game is one of those. And I think the choice hurts hurts the book overall. I think it makes that, you know, again, if we're making this distinction that you kind of brought up earlier, right? Like this game is fucking great. This book could, could improve. Like, Mm -hmm. I think that's one of the things that I would point to as a, like, give me a little bevy of options, show people playing this game differently. Because like I said, this game can be a fucking riot, like literally. And in the terms of laughter, like Mm -hmm. it can be a really good action adventure game. It can like, because the underpinning of tragic horror is so strong, you can play in genre and the game kind of does this in the module section, but like you can play around with genre a little bit because the, the core is all there. And like being able to read that in the book, I think would make this whole thing stronger than it currently is, which is like, a fucking great game that I've like sat down to play so many times because it's so cool. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think like this gets at sort of the big, my big thing, which you've already said in some ways, right. Which is like, the game is so cool. The The book just feels a little like maybe. Yeah. Just it. 
I wish that there was more, especially as a person who's not going to play this and who, <laughs> and who likes to read it. Like I ended up coming away with a lot of questions is maybe a, a different way of saying it from my perspective, right? Where like sometimes I read I read an RPG and I, I'm like, oh, okay. Like, yeah, like I see how it all comes together. And like it, maybe this is an unfair comparison in some ways, right? But like, uh, I think I said this about Alone Among the Stars. Um, yeah. Like, Alone Among the Stars, I read through that, and it's, I don't think it's just because of, of the sort of length. It, I think it's just it was really tightly designed. And I yes. was like, oh, fuck, yeah, okay, I see how this all fits together, <laughs> oh, this fuck rules. Yeah. <laughs> and, like, I still had most of that reaction, except that it. I just ended up feeling like there were sort of more holes. And, I mean, it's worth saying again, right? Like, part of that is also just interesting. So, so like, mm-hmm. some, of, some of the stuff we're both bringing up, I think, it... I would totally be fine if the answer to a lot of our questions were, yeah, no, that was kind of intentional just to kind of like leave that room for people to sort of wonder like, oh, I guess I could do it either as hidden or not hidden. Yeah, totally. Which would be a totally reasonable response. Um, uh, so I think the the last thing in character creation stuff that uh, we want to talk about, which we haven't really talked about. I guess there's two things. One is you mentioned modules and I skipped over those entirely. So yeah, you um, did. <laughs> so, so, and mostly it's because uh, I think that is, that is 1000% a person who is reading this book and not planning on playing it problem. If that makes uh-huh. sense. <laughs> yeah. um, because I think the modules are really interesting if you are thinking of pl- playing and I didn't find a ton to sort of think through, but the the very high level there is, so we've talked about you do your traits, you do your moment, you do your brink. You also kind of do like a description of your character. So a name, a look, a concept. And before you do any of that, uh, you need to kind of know what the world is. And so the way 10 Candles is set up, are you, you it's suggested that you use these modules where a module is basically a series of a few paragraphs that kind of does like some very high level sort of scene setting or world building. And then at least in the book, all of the modules have areas of note. So like, here are some places that would occur in this module um, that the players might go to. Uh, and then there's a goal, which I found interesting. It's fascinating. It's absolutely because that comes up. The those two things, so the areas of note and the goal are like little, like that, you know, it's like bold and italicized and sort of a small font below the actual module itself. Those, that is not talked about anywhere else in the game. Like, <laughs> yeah, th- this was a question I had. I-, I skimmed through, but I didn't actually pull out the PDF to like do a search. But I, I was wondering if the, because it- it- I didn't remember them coming up at all. But I I could be wrong. There maybe is like a, a, a small thing in the GM area, but I'm like 99% sure that it just like, it just like introduces those. Also, um, at least of the ones in this, in the book, um, just to, to say it, I like did a little um, digging for a thing that I'll bring up later. Um, I believe these are all basically about 200 words or less. Oh, cool. Okay. Yeah, they, they, they feel of a piece in terms of like, if you just flip through them, like they're slightly different, but they all kind of feel similarly sized. So it would make sense. But so the, the module basically helps sort of set the world. So the, the, the very high, high, high level premise is uh, something happened. The world went dark. There's no electricity. There's no light, etc. Um, that was 10 days ago. That was 10 days ago. And they, capital T, are here and they're pursuing us. And the only thing the only thing you know is that they don't like the light. That's how you start. Yes. Uh, so I wanted to get that out of the way first. And then 
The other thing I think in character creation is the candles and like sort of the structure of the chapter, which we haven't really touched on. Um, yeah, it's cool. It it's is really, really cool. cool. <laughs> so I, I wanted to make sure we ta- talked about it before we move on because it's very cool. Yeah. Um, so like the, the the basic description of it, right? Um, it's like it, basically as you are going through each mo- each um, aspect of character creation, the, the the writing down of vices and virtues, um, the brink and all that stuff, and like car- creating your character and stuff like that. There are specific points at which the game will say, um, "At this point, light three candles." At this point, light three candles. Um, and it's just again, this is like. This is this is this is probably where I first started being like, this is a game about ritual. Is this a game about how all tabletop games are rituals? <laughs> because like, yeah, it's just this simple thing, and I've done this before, and it's fuck, it's cool every time. Yeah, because number one, it puts your players in the space in a gentle but like very meaningful way. Right. This is yeah, kind so of the purpose of ritual. <laughs> it's worth it's worth saying, right? So, like, I talked at the beginning. You play with the lights on for this first part because you're like writing on paper and stuff, right? Which I think is very cool to think about as you go through. So you are starting with, you know, you're just in a room. Yeah. And then and then your GM starts lighting candles, <laughs> and the lights go out. Yeah. And like, and this is the thing, right? Because this is the reason it's so cool. One of the reasons it's so cool. It's because it's light three candles here, do these things. Light three candles here, do these things. So you have this sort of, not to use a word that has been absolutely ruined by the internet, you have this sort of liminal moment between when we're all hanging out and when we're all in character. And it is it is uh, codified, it is ritualized in such a way that like you go, you move from one space to the other with the direction of this book by doing a cool thing, which is lighting candles. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's true. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's cool. I, it really, like, it's, yeah, it's just very cool. I I thought I had more, but I don't. It's just very cool. Like, it, yeah. <laughs> it's very cool. And like you said, it, it, it also, I think, works really well to bring the table's attention to the center, right? Yes. And like... Like you said, it's like this weird wibbly space between what are we do like are we playing are we what and then and then you know you know right the mm-hmm. lights in the room are off we are now operating a uh, on candlelight etc. Um, Chad is here and ready to get kisses exactly <laughs> that's what we all say um, cool well uh, so I am going to try now to talk about the main <laughs> mechanics of the game. Let's Briefly. talk about dice pools. So uh, we're again. here yet again uh, <laughs> with dice pools. Basically, there are 10 scenes, right? And each scene is represented by a candle. And so as you start each scene, you know, the GM will say something, right? You're in a, a gas station and what do you do? Whatever. Um, mm-hmm. And then... Uh, the players talk, and at some point, the GM or players will say, like, hey, I think, like, there's a conflict here, right? I think it's meant to be the GM, usually. But basically, we'll yes. be like, okay, yeah, yeah. that that sounds like a conflict. That sounds like something you could roll for. And so th- this, is how, this is how the game gets played. So in a scene, uh, when the first conflict comes up, s- some things to note. One player can do a conflict at once. So a conflict is tied to a specific player. When the conflict comes up, 
what happens is that the player will gather uh, as many dice as there are lit candles currently in the scene, roll all of those, mm-hmm. and in order to succeed in the conflict, there needs to be at least one six in the result. Any dice that show as a one after you roll get removed from the pool of player dice for the rest of that scene. Yes, not permanently. Not permanently. So what this means is, you know, you're at the gas station and you you found a car, but the car has no gas. So how are you going to siphon gas or whatever? Let's say that's the first one. Somebody could do that. And if they succeed, the scene doesn't end and other people can then take action, right? But right. And, yeah. if you uh, fail the scene, um, so if there are no sixes uh, and you fail, then that scene is over, the candle gets uh, darkened. I'm skipping over a part, which is important. But yep. um, that's the sort of, that's the basic of like the conflict. Now, this all gets complicated by your index cards. So traits, moments, and brinks allow you to do certain things to sort of augment dice. We can talk about those in detail if we want, but that's what they're used for is you can re-roll certain things or you can add a dice, right? So like moments allow you to get Um, When you call on your moment, it can allow you to get a hope dice, which is a dice that is specific to you, the player, that you get to roll whenever you're in a conflict. And that one is a success on fives and sixes. So there are ways that you can sort of manipulate the dice and et cetera, et cetera. But the part that I have not talked about is that... Yes, uh, yes. (laughs) ...is one of the coolest parts of this game, if not maybe the coolest part that Uh isn't candles and a fireproof Uh bowl. Um, Uh (laughs) Like, so... Uh, there is there is success and failure in a conflict, which is the activity you are trying, like your character is trying to do. But there is also a separate concept of the narration rights. No matter if you, the player character, succeed or fail, who gets to narrate that success or failure um, is a related but slightly separate process. <laughs> um, yes. Do you want to talk a little bit about the rest of that? Since I've been talking about mechanics for like minutes <laughs> <laughs> yeah um so the the very basic level is so the characters start with all the dice so the players start with all the dice like you said every time a candle gets darkened they permanently lose one of those dice they don't lose it into the ether they lose it to the gm mm-hmm. so scene one every player who rolls a conflict rolls 10 dice any six is, a single six means they succeed any ones pulled out so so the so the scene will hopefully eventually end. I have had scene one go on for like 45 minutes or an hour um, just because of good rolls. As the GM gets dice, they will roll basically alongside any roll that the players do. They are not rolling to win because the only way to fail a roll is to just not have a six. What the GM is rolling for is... Uh, to be able to narrate what ha- how the success goes or the failure, but the GM always gets the failure, I believe. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, and to do that, basically, it, it means uh, if the GM has as many or more sixes as the players do, uh, the GM gets to narrate the thing. If the players have more sixes, the, and this is the, the this is truly the interesting part. If the players have the most sixes, the players narrate the outcome of their role. Mm-hmm. So in the first round, it's impossible for that not to happen, right? The GM has no dice. The first scene of every game of 10 candles, 
assuming they don't bust out on the first or second roll, the GM is basically not doing anything. Just hanging. Yeah, you're just sitting there. You've you've read the module. You've you know you've done the the little ritual, and then you kind of just hang out and go. Okay, I think that would be a conflict, and then they succeed at the conflict. Then then they go, and what happens? And then you go, no, you you won the narration rights. Yeah, you say you you tell me. Like you are you are in charge until probably scene three or four. There's a the minuscule chance that I'm going to be able to tell you anything about what happens. Uh, once you have succeeded at a conflict. And that is so fucking cool. <laughs> Not to just repeat myself over and over, but like, it is a type of play that like, or it is a way of mechanizing what I think a lot of games sort of want you to be able to do or like want you to do. You know, it's the like, just sit back and ask questions style of GMing that a lot of games like promote. This is a tight, cool, like very specific mechanic that is very memorable and leads you to to play a game where players from the jump have an, a vested interest in knowing the world as well as you do. Yeah, well, it it turns that relationship on its head in a way, right? Like in a normal kind of, especially if you think of like a campaign, right? Like uh, wh- when you start the the player characters and players probably don't have a ton of idea of like, you know, how we want to make this world our own or what would make it cool. Uh, but then as you get further in the, the players get more familiar, blah, blah, blah. And this is, this is the opposite. Like (laughs) this is the players really get to do a lot of stage setting and a lot of the initial stuff. And then it gets sort of harder and harder (laughs) as the game goes on for the players to both succeed and then also succeed and narrate, right? Um, mm-hmm. Because the dice, the the just raw numbers of dice are going to shift into the favor of the the GM. It's it's genuinely very very cool and like a really clever and super smart inversion of a bunch of stuff. I yeah, I think it's I think it's very cool. And there's there's like even more stuff here too, right? Like so, I actually really like this. is very small, but like. I just think it's great that for narration rights, ties always break in favor of the GM. And I thought that was very clever because I I feel like in a lot of games, the default would be, no, we're going to you know be a fan of the player. You know, that's in like mm-hmm. a billion a billion games now, right? So like, yep. and in this case, no, it makes a lot of sense, right? Like ties should break in favor of the GM because for what, like the first three to four scenes, it's going to be probably a lot harder for the GM to actually <laughs> win that narration which is cool. And then on top of that, so if a conflict is successful, right? So you, the player, were successful, but if the GM wins narration rights, right? So they have an equal number or more of sixes, the active player can go ahead and basically say like, nah, I take it. (laughs) I actually get it. But you darken a candle and immediately end the scene. And so it it doesn't make it a failure. You still succeeded, but also you have one less candle and one less scene. So you are closer to the end. Well, this is the other thing I think it explicitly says also, you can also do that on a failed roll. Yeah. It just means you darken two candles. So you have cut out a fifth of the game if you do that. Whoa. So it's a big choice. Yeah. Yeah. But also, if you're in it in that way and you're like, no, I need this to break in a specific way and I know the GM's not going to give it to me, you could be like, listen, we're 
I'm getting rid of two candles here. No one can stop me. And I'm telling you how this ends, uh, which is also cool. <laughs> yeah, it is very, very cool. Yeah, it's cool. Uh, I think in general, <laughs> I really like, I think this conflict, like the conflict mechanic generally, which I, I realize I don't know if we've, if we've even talked about this in any of our prep even, but like, I just think this is, it's a very simple and pretty intuitive approach to like a dice pool. Uh-huh. Doesn't seem super overly complicated. I think the like the rhythm of losing the dice and it's getting it's getting smaller is like also just a very cool visual piece of it's, this game. And it's getting darker as the exactly. candles go out, like a hundred percent. Yeah. Um yep. it it just it all like it fits together so well and I, I find it very, very impressive. I uh I have a my favorite story of ten candles, um I'm just gonna tease right here. Uh involves uh, <laughs> a very specific thing that happened with regards to narration rights, but we need to get to the last stand before we get there. Um, so I'll, I'll hold off just for a, just for a touch longer. <laughs> sure. Well, so I guess what else around conflict do we want to talk about? Do we want to talk through like specific ways you use traits and brinks and moments? I- I've touched on at least moments. Like the interesting stuff is the hope dice. Um, yeah. The tra- traits are essentially you can burn them to, I guess, re- re-roll ones in yes. conflict. Is that right? Exactly. Yes. So if you, if you rolled, you know, two sixes and, uh, you know, three fives and uh, the remaining number of ones, uh, that'd be five. If you, if you roll like five ones on a roll or whatever, you would lose those five dice unless you can say, my virtue is active uh, and I'm going to burn it to re-roll all those ones. Um, and in that case, what you're doing is like just making it so the next person who has a conflict has a chance at succeeding. <laughs> yeah, which I think is a pretty cool. I I think is really cool, right? I think that like the ch- the choice of using a trait, like one, you could use it when you didn't succeed at all, right? So you rolled seven ones and are like, well, I really wanted to succeed this. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, or you rolled whatever five ones and a four and a three, but like you said, or you could succeed. You could get multiple sixes, but because you've succeeded, we don't want to end the scene, right? And yeah. so giving your your fellow players more of a chance is like, I think that's a that's a very, very cool decision. Totally. So that yeah, so the moment, yeah, the moment, the way that works is just you get to your moment as as you know, you and the GM tell you that the moment is happening. And you it's a, that one's like a what was the specific thing about that one you burn that one before you roll your dice i think correct is like the is the thing that makes it slightly or the other thing that makes it slightly different um and you burn it basically to say like if i succeed at this roll i'm gonna get access to my hope dice correct and that is like you said that's a dice that succeeds on a five and a six that never loses your never um disappears from your pool on a one and the only way to lose it is to fail a brink roll yeah. So the and and the moment is it is its own conflict essentially when you, when you sort of it's called living your moment right. So when it comes up, you are you are rolling a, a conflict roll to try and succeed on that to get that hope dice. But like you said, you need to do it. You, you do it bef- before essentially like a thing like a scene in which you could use a trait or something. Yes. And yeah, it like. Again, this seems like it's a very simple, in some ways, mechanic, but 
the the power of having something that succeeds on a five or a six suddenly seems very very powerful the more mm-hmm. you think about it <laughs> and it's also just a good practice to have your players write down like hey here's a scene i would like to see in this game that is entirely made up of scenes yeah like, that's just like that is just useful information for a gm 100 <laughs> percent. yeah um yeah absolutely um and then brinks are weird <laughs> yeah, br- brinks are a little weird, for sure. Um, I mean, so like we said, right, the the brink is sort of, uh, it's, it's the thing that you do when you're pushed to the edge. It's your final card, right? Um, yes. So, uh, like, I can read some examples that might be useful, right? So it starts with, it brinks uh, are supposed to start with, I have seen you. Yeah. Because you're writing about, of course, another player, because you write one and then pass it, right? Um, And so it's, I have seen you, I'll I'll read one of the examples. I have seen you break down. While we were on the run, you lost it over this dead dog. You cried for hours. I almost left you behind. Which I I really like as as compared to the one right before it. I have seen you destroy what you care about most. I saw you on trial before the world went dark. Three dead, your family, you monster. Um, It's just really like... This, this is an italicized text portion I really like a lot. Uh, I think mm-hmm. these are I think I think the examples here are really really super good and like show you the range and like the really productive and interesting range, right? Of like one brink, the one about I saw you on trial is about fear, right? And about what it, this person is capable of, and the other is about like I, you're going to become dead weight. I can't t- I can't take care of you, right? Yeah, which is so cool and so flavorful and so helpful, like to players. I would imagine, like it just really shows the the ways you can use brink in really cool ways. Um, and what what do you do with them it, again? It's weird. Um, I just want to say that I think this is an example. We sort of brought this up already in the hidden information chat, but I think this is a really good example of hidden information in this game like where it when it when it becomes or when i see it and go oh fuck yeah because like like you said um you, these start out with i have seen you and so it, you specifically are choosing to give somebody else a trait so that you know about it you as a player know about it so your you, uh, your character also knows about it and having that be a thing that is that can be secret between you and another player but doesn't have to be because you're a person you could just say your secrets out loud it's like it. It is a productive tension at the table, in my experience, yeah. um, and just in my reading. That like I think is is very cool. The thing you do with Brinks is like, oh, it's like a trait, but be- but better slash worse. So, yeah, after you've rolled uh, your your dice pool for a given conflict, if your Brink is active, so again, your Brink would have to be at the bottom of your stack. So this would be you've used both traits and you've lived your moment. You can choose to, quote, embrace your brink, um, which allows you to re-roll the entire dice pool. So yes, even if you had gotten a success, if you were trying to, for instance, get narrative control <laughs> um, mm-hmm. <laughs> and you want more sixes than the GM, because, again, brinks are probably going to happen late game. So the GM's dice pool is going to start growing pretty quick. So you can re-roll everything, even your successes. And if it, if it was, if you re-roll your brink roll, if you get at least one six or a five or a six on a hope die, then you're successful. And basically it gets it gets treated like a regular conflict. All of the ones go away, etc. The interesting thing that I just read, I think I skipped over this in every reading. I didn't realize this. If you do a successful brink roll, you get to keep the brink. You keep your brink, yes. I yes. missed that. 
Yes. No, it's very important. Yeah. <laughs> okay. That's great. Uh, wow. Yeah. I somehow completely missed these like two sentences on this page 27. Anyway, I was going to say, so the, the other thing, so if, if you embrace your brink and you roll and there's no sixes or no hope die with a five or a six, then you've been consumed by your brink. You must immediately darken a candle. <laughs> you must immediately burn your brink. And then if you had any personal hope dice, gone. Bye-bye. <laughs> yeah, this is very, like, I, I thought brinks were, like, neat. I, like, I thought it was, like, a, a, you know, like, I think it's clever, the, like, the, the way it intersects with the stacking, I think, is cool. Like you said, I, I, I like the hidden information stuff here. I think it's kind of fun. But I, I really like them a lot more now. I, I did not, <laughs> I did not realize that you get to keep it. That's very cool that you get to keep it on a success. Because, like, flavor-wise and narrative-wise, right, like... You get to keep this, like, sort of terrible, horrible thing about your character. Yes. And then use it again to try and succeed, right? Which is very cool and very clever. Uh, right, and like you said, the brink is probably not... I mean, like, literally, what is it? Like, if you... Because you can only use one thing per scene. Yeah. I wonder if that influences whether or not you can use the vice or virtue after the moment, actually. I don't I don't actually know how those things intersect. Um, but let's say... Let's say we're operating under the assumption that we can do the thing that we said that you can do, which is like use a vice or virtue after using your moment, because you burn the moment ahead of the cards, uh, ahead of the roll. That's what? You could get rid of those three cards in two scenes. You wouldn't be able to use your brink until scene three, maybe four. Yeah, it would. So like literally like literally power gaming this which is not how anyone plays 10 candles that i've ever experienced um it's also you should not play it that way listener yeah <laughs> please don't you're just doing I yourself mean, it, a disservice it could be if you're i don't know if it could be an interesting experience like a, in, in a medley of other experiences with 10 candles but yeah probably not that worth it um but just like doing the maths very quickly right like at the dead earliest you scene three so like Brinks, you could roll, you could re-roll with seven dice at at absolute maximum. Much more likely your Brink isn't coming out until you got five dice, four dice, probably. Mm-hmm. And it it doesn't have the thing that the traits and that the traits have, right? Where like you re-roll, but you keep all you just re-roll the ones, so you if you have a success, it stays a success. If you're rolling your brink, you are just re-rolling. Yeah. Just flat re-rolling. You have no idea what the 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 numbers uh, there's no weight to the numbers they're they're simply numbers that will that will happen <laughs> um and so yeah sometimes your your character will go like ah f- ah fuck i want narration rights uh you know i got i got two sixes and the gm got two i'm a i'm a ro- reroll these four dice and you go well time to darken that candle because <laughs> i just threw away that success um or you go i'm going to embrace this like truly terrible aspect of myself and for the next three four five scenes you are just rolling around in in all of the awfulness that has that someone has seen in you over and over and you're winning though <laughs> it's true it's true yeah you are winning Brinks are cool yeah they're they're very cool I mean, I think that the the biggest thing we haven't touched on really at all in this section is the truths, uh, the establishing truths phase. Yeah, um, I have a I have a quote from you here. Yeah, uh, 
Would you like to read us? Yeah. Um, I, don't, I can't really do an impression of you, sorry. That's fine. Uh, but you said to me, truths are weird. That's true. I did say that. It's true and it's true. Truths. It's the truth. Oh, fuck. Uh-huh. No, we did it. We were doing great. Um, yeah, so, the, so basically after a scene ends, so after a failure in which you, uh, or any of the other ways in which you could extinguish a candle, but failure is the most obvious one. So let's say you fail a conflict, so you put out a candle. You then move to sort of the interlude, which is establishing a truth. And I I, I think, I, like, I, I don't dislike this. I just, it does feel a little odd to me. Yeah. It's very open. There's a lot of power in this for players. Yes. Because basically what you do is this is another sort of expression of the ritual, right? So when a scene sort ends, <laughs> uh, you establish truths. And this starts with the GM stating, these things are true. The world is dark. And then everyone at the table goes around the table clockwise. So the GM says it, and then the next player And essentially, as many candles are as currently lit, right? Keeping in mind, you're doing this after a scene, so it's always going to be nine at the most. Everybody goes around and establishes a truth. So says a single true thing about the world. And then once you go through and you've done that as many times as there's a candle, uh, the final truth is spoken, which is all of the players state the following, and we are alive. That moment can be really powerful. Just going to say. Yeah. Well, and I actually, I, this reminded me because it's about, I think it's just about speaking stuff out loud. We didn't actually touch on the recording stuff in character creation. Yeah. Which I, I just am going to put a pin in in case we want to come back to that, basically. Yeah. Um, <laughs> okay. Uh, I just wanted to say it out loud. But like, but yeah, so so the, the thing that you're doing when you speak a truth is you, you are establishing a thing about the world. Uh, as it says in on page 46, when you speak a truth, you may establish any one thing as an irrefutable fact of the story. This is where I think some of the like language is a little confusing um (laughs) or like not confusing it's it's absolutely not confusing what it is is just ambiguous and i I am as we are talking through this starting to wonder if that is a very intentional thing that mr stephen dewey is doing (laughs) um because it keeps coming up right but basically each truth should be a single change is what he says but it that change could be anything so it really is quite a lot of power that the players suddenly get. But it's not just the players, because the GM also gets to introduce truths. So yes. as long as there are more candles than players left, right, it's always going to go around that circle and get back to the GM. But I, So I will say that one of the examples that he gave in talking about sort of like only having it be about one thing. I can't find it right now, but uh, he's saying the example was something like, so you can establish that you made it to the abandoned gas station, right? But not that the lights were on. Exactly. But you can't, you can't then establish we made it to the abandoned gas station and we found there's a community of people there and they had a generator. Other people could then build off of, which totally seems like it will be the thing that happens, right, is somebody comes up with a good truth, and then somebody else maybe also had their own good truth, but people are going to start building on things together. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, the GM is probably going to, you know, throw a wrench in the thing. It's cool. It's also, it's like, maybe weird isn't the right word, really, Um, but I don't know. Like, I think it's cool. It's just... Also, yeah, I guess it just struck me as a little weird. 
I've got I got some thoughts. Yeah, please. <laughs> um, I th- mm. The more I've thought about this, the more I think this is sort of the central thing in this book to me that hits at the core incoherence between the two games that I've been talking about this as being, right? The game about ritual, the, ga- the game that the argument is ritual, the game whose argument is ritual, versus the adventure game that we're being shown in the in the margins of that game. Hmm. Say more. The truth thing might be the coolest idea ever in a role-playing game for a lot of reasons, not least of which is the framing. The way you started out by the GM quietly intoning, these things are true, the world is dark, puts you in a fucking mode mode instantly. The fact that then the players get to do literally anything they want to do, with the exception of anything that is two things or anything that directly impacts uh, them, the capital T, them, is... Like, that is that is so much power. Like you said, that is so much trust in in the players. Like this this is like this is the epitome of of games as you know a shared imagined space, as they would have said in the Forge a million years ago. Right? We are all doing this together. You you the whole first scene. You've been you've been running narration. Like you've had narration rights. Anytime you've rolled conflict and succeeded, like there is so much trust placed in the player here. But the imagination that the game has of what this means is people going around a table and saying like oh, we got to the place we were looking for oh there's lights on there oh there's some guns in there oh there's something spooky in there too all right thanks for the truths and it's like that's like <sighs> there's such a there's a huge possibility space here that, that Ten Candles, the book as it currently exists, does not take advantage of at all. And I desperately want it to, because I think, I'm sure Stephen Dewey has run a lot of games of Ten Candles, has some seat in some wild shit. I know conceptually that truths can do huge, incredible things to a game, but not having something there has like held me back from like being able to convey to my players like no 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 you can do anything as long as it's one thing and it doesn't have anything to do with them like you can make you can make a world (laughs) happen right now but the way the book conveys that is just like you can make a world happen meaning you can get um you can you can do the transition scene between scenes that's interesting i I actually, I actually really like this actual, this actual play section. Uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, which, so I, I don't, I, I wasn't, I, yeah, this is, uh, this is an interesting, I don't even disagree necessarily, but like, <laughs> I like, I like this section. Like, it's pretty, it's not like, it's not, they're not wildly changing the world, but the the way it walks, this is on page 48 in the book, but like the way it walks through stuff, I think is really fascinating. And like, you know, it's basically, there's a thing where somebody like finds a weird 
a, a weird thing, right? Some sort of weird spooky thing, maybe a claw. And then it's like, okay, well, we got to the police station. Oh, and there's lights on inside and there's a generator, but it's going to die. But like where they end is like the people inside are wounded and the thing that wounded them is still inside the building. And so like, I actually like this as a more mundane example of like, how do we get from one scene to the next, right? Which is, I think, an op- a big open question for me in this game, especially because of stuff we're going to talk about, which is, like, it, Stephen Dewey is very insistent that you should not be prepping for this game, right? So yes. I actually found this example, like, really helpful because my big question about truth was was literally, like, I, it's, like, it's, like, the opposite valence of what you're saying in some ways, right? Which is, like, <laughs> my thing was, like, well, I could absolutely imagine, like, you make a grand pronouncement about the world and that's cool. But, like, I was also just thinking, but how do you use this to get from one scene to the next? Like, yeah, which is interesting. I, like, I, You're right. I, and I still, I, I still tend to agree with, like, uh, it's the earlier point, right? I just, especially you made this point, I think, in your notes, right? Which is, like jumping to the modules like there's a bunch of module examples in the physical book and then there's even more in the pdf version and the modules range wildly in terms of like tone and like flavor and setting and like genres they're playing with and like to the point where there's there's like one that's like a you know just like a slasher teen slasher flick one but then there's also like you must find the 10 candles and return them to the god before the world ends or whatever yes. like yeah and so it's just I, just you know echoing what you've said already but like i liked this one but i also agree like i would i would have loved to see different ways that these things could play out um cuz i think it would be really helpful this is this is the point about the actual play stuff, right? Yeah, the 100%. point of having a, a single, a single running, th- single one running through, and not other options. Because you're right, it is really cool to use truths to just get from point A to point B. Although I will also say, montage, it's okay. <laughs> like you could just do a scene and then do another scene. You don't have to like, you don't have to string them together. You can, you can, you can use the tools of montage as taught to us by the great Soviets. Uh, Eisenstein I mean, and so okay. on. Well, uh, so, first off, I was the one who made that point. I know montage exists, but, like, that's not how the game works, is, like, my main thing. Like, uh-huh. like the game works by you that's do a scene, and then you, uh-huh. and then you do your you do your truths that sort of help flesh yes. out the world and help you figure out where you're going next. Um, yes. I know montage yeah. exists. <laughs> Thank you. And I know you do. I just... I, this is maybe t- more to my point of, like, I don't need that as much, or I don't want that as much even. Like, I I kind of love just, like, the thing I do in every game that has scenes is be the person who goes, okay, it's a year later, right? Be the person who, does, who doesn't who does just go, okay, this thing that we were just doing was really fun, so let's just immediately follow it up. I'm always the person who's like, no, if we have a scene break and I can just choose anything, I'm going to make something happen so that people are aware that they can do longer jumps or flashbacks, whatever it is, whatever the game is, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I'm just less of a person who wants that in the first place. But to your point, I think the actual play here that they do have is really useful for that, including for me. But for that to be all there is in this section, like, frustrates me, I guess, is is what it comes down to. Yeah, Yeah. no, that makes a lot of sense. Um, Is there anything else in the conflict stuff? 
that we want to touch on before we go to the sort of the final section, which is also weird and full of lots of things. <laughs> yeah, let's, I mean, let's talk about GM notes and shit. <laughs> yeah. So the the last section is called Here There Is Darkness. I, I think we talked about this earlier, but the the like, you know, the little like subtitle is Turn Back Survivors. This is their domain, um, mm, which I like. I just thought that spooky. was, I just thought it's like cute and clever. Like it, essentially what that is saying is like, uh, players, you don't need to read this. This is really for the GM. Um, and it's, yeah, so it's written for the GM. It, it goes through a, a few different things. Um, there's a bunch of stuff I think we wanted to touch on here. Uh, I think for me, I'm going to start with my big one. Um, okay, I'll sit back. <laughs> Um, so the, th- there's a lot of really, I think, good and interesting stuff in here. And I unfortunately got hung up on a word because I'm me. <laughs> um, but it, it's a, it is a consistent thing. It's mentioned a few times, but like it says right here on page 51. Uh, so there's, there's like a full page that's like, Hey, this is written for the GM. This is kind of what I'm going to talk about here. Um, this is sort of what your high level guide is. And then it's like, okay, this is how you set the stage. This is how you do, like, this is what you need to do in the play area, right? You need to think about the lighting. You need to think about what module you're going to use. And then the next paragraph starts with zero prep. Don't plan anything. I will repeat that. Don't plan anything. Though you will need to choose or design a module for your session, 10 Candles is a cooperative storytelling game at heart. And he goes on. And like... I want to say, I actually like, I I like most of what this says. (laughs) Uh, This is a game, given everything we've said, where you as a GM should not come in with a whole huge story document, right? Because you're not going to be able to narrate almost anything for the first at least two scenes, likely, right? Unless you get a really lucky roll in that second scene with your one die. But this is not a zero prep game because no tabletop RPGs are zero prep games. <laughs> like I, I just, this is just like a hard line for me, I think. And it's like a, a silly thing to probably to care so much about, but like this takes work and like this takes like thinking and even just like thinking about the play area, choosing the module and figuring out who your players are and what might be good and fun. Right. Like that's work. And like, I think what Stephen Dewey means is don't world build, right? Like, don't come in with, like, big plot beats you know you want to hit. Because this is really about collaborative storytelling, truly, which is great. Like, it's it's cooperative. It's collaborative. It's about the players having a real, like, strong hand in the narration, especially early. But there's still ways you can take that over later, right? Like, it's it's, like, I totally get it. But... There's this insistence on, like, don't plan, don't plan, stop planning, don't plan. But then there are also parts where he's like, and here's a way that you can divide uh, the enemies up into three tiers. And you can... Dark, darker, and darkest? Yeah, dark, wow. darker, and darkest. And you can, like, <laughs> build towards, uh, you know, coming, like, the last stand can use the heaviest and biggest enemies. And I'm just like... that. That's prep, bud. Like, uh-huh. <laughs> like that's work you got to do. And like, maybe for some people, that's super, super fast, right? But I, I've just even been thinking, like, as I was looking through modules, right? I was looking at some of the areas of note. I just know who I am and I know my brain. I'm sure I could come up with something cool. But like, I, 
I would rather have a list, like a piece of paper next to me that has like a list of the areas of note and just like an idea for like, whatever, they went to the old gas station and I write the word generator broken question mark or like broken Mm -hmm. glass question mark, right? Like, it's light, it's not huge prep, but like, I think that it I think that it is not doing this game itself a service to be like, please don't plan anything, stop planning anything. <laughs> because I also just don't think that's what he's saying, right? What he's saying is don't come in with an explicit story start to finish that you are trying to tell. That's not what this game is. This system will not serve you well. I I love that. Absolutely. Right? Like, I love that he's being clear about that. I just it's not a zero prep game. Like, it's just not. <laughs> and like, uh, I also think you're doing it as service to some readers and some potential GMs when you're setting them up for Hi. a position where they might be in the middle of a session and suddenly are like, fuck, wait, I don't, but I didn't think at all about what they might do in this building. Uh-huh. And so I just, I, like, I just wish this was like written a little sort of more clearly. And I feel like the language could be a little sort of more precise because uh, this part in particular, just really, I was like, but you, uh, there are multiple times in this book already that you have talked about things that are just clearly prep to me. And maybe we just mean very different things by prep. And so uh, that's just, that's my big BW's weird little <laughs> bugbear, you know? Uh um, I don't. I don't think we've actually talked about this before off off the off the podcast. Um, I fully have been dashed against this particular rock with this particular game. Sure. Yeah, I could imagine. Yeah, like it, it says zero prep on the back, baby. I'm like cool zero prep. I hate doing prep. I actually really like doing prep, but I just don't ever want to do it. You know, that's one of those things in my brain. Um, I was like, fuck yeah, no prep. Hell yeah, I'll read the book. I know that's. Under a, a reasonable definition, that would count as prep, but whatever. Um, but I like just went into the game, like, let's go. And yeah, exactly what you said just has happened to me. I just, you know, midway through a game. The, I think the the one that I mentioned earlier, like the six hour game, like, I'm part of that was because, like, halfway through, they had established like four running threads that I didn't have any notes on or anything because I hadn't prepared anything and i hadn't and i had taken seriously that it is zero prep and i had to just like i think i had a break for like 20 minutes 30 minutes and just be like yo these candles are gonna keep going but i need to step outside and like fucking write some notes down because there's like there are so many cool things happening right now and they're all gonna fall to pieces if like i don't take some time to prepare some notes about what is going to continue happening through this Instead, we'll all just, like, follow our own little arrows and and end up with a game where everyone's like, I guess I died, but, you know, that seemed really cool at the beginning. And, like, I, I, I actually really like, like, this just feels very related to what you just said, right? I actually really like the, like, the second paragraph in the Zero Prep, which is, while it never hurts to think ahead of time about some traps they might set or an interesting account- encounter with other survivors, be prepared to discard such ideas as the players come up with their own stories and diversions. And I, I was like, well, yeah, that's... That's perfect, right? That is... <laughs> well... <laughs> but, like, I, I think that's, like, really good advice, right? For a, a, no, a GM wanting to run this game. Um, but, like, you've also... Like, he just he just disagreed with himself. Because, like, 
the paragraph before is like, don't plan anything. I will repeat that. And to your point, it's on the it's on the back of the bo- of the book. It's like in I think the first page of the book. It's multiple places. It is an advertising mechanism for this book. Yeah, like very clearly. And I just, uh, given all, all the stuff, I mean, we've been talking about this game now for forever, right? Like, this is a really cool game, and there's a lot of really weird things, and, like, there are parts of it that are, like, more crunchy than I expected, right? Like, there, it's not, you know, it's whatever, it's not Beam Saber or something, but it's, like, it, like there's just, there's decision spaces that are very cool with each of your different cards, and, like, the fact that I didn't understand the Brink thing, and now, like, Brinks just seem so <laughs> cool, right? <laughs> like... So like I, I part of this is just me being like I just I wish you were serving the GMs better here because yeah <laughs> like uh, it is good to think about the game you're going to play absolutely you should not be coming into this with a six page storybook right like but like yes pre- th- this is a game that prep could serve you well and like maybe th- this also feels to me like a thing of somebody who's run a lot of games <laughs> right which is like this there's no prep because like you've run a lot of games. And so like, it's pretty easy for you to just like pull on past experience or blah, blah, blah. I've run three, ga- two games, I think in my life. Yeah. Uh, so yeah. like, I, I would just- Speaking of audiences. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And <laughs> so th- like, again, this is part of everything we've been saying here, right? Like, I think this game is so cool. And I, I just, I feel like the book sometimes doesn't do it, it do it justice. Um, Tui, Um Yeah. Um, can I talk about my small bugbear? Please. <laughs> they, I could, I could spin this up into a big point, but I don't think I need to. Um, there's just a couple of examples throughout where it's just like, why are you having, why are you giving me examples to roll perception checks? Why, why are we doing perception checks? We're so far away from Dungeons and Dragons. We don't need to do this. We don't need to just roll a thing that's completely inconsequential because we just decide to roll the thing. Um, that that's not how the dice in this game work. Like it's don't don't give examples of play where there is no interesting negative outcome that still carries the full weight of ending a scene. I, there's a couple of them I pulled right. It's on what's uh, there's one on page thirty four where like the character says, "All right, I'm looking for supplies," and the GM goes, "Okay, make me a cl- make me a conflict roll." And it's like I don't what's and the the reason given, right, is that, like, you know, we don't know what the supplies are, and so, especially in this early scene, like, it's theoretically interesting to roll for supplies because the player is going to succeed and have narration, right? So they're going to be able to just tell you, like, oh, this is what I found. But also you could just say, like, oh, yeah, what do you think you would find in here? And you could just have that conversation and then save the roll for, like, a thing that that's, like, meaningful and, like, would be a good way to end a scene rather than being like, Oh, I didn't find any supplies. I guess, uh, I guess the, the light goes out and we establish some truths about how we get to the next place. Like that's just bad storytelling. I think. So I, I have completely switched on this since we first talked about this. Cause I now a hundred percent disagree with you. I think this is pacing. I think that is what he is trying to get you to do. And I think that's why he is encouraging smaller roles and not having every conflict be huge. This is the way to make 10 candles not last six hours, which I don't think most people want their tabletop RPGs to last six hours. I don't usually, but they always do. So, And, and like, and I, I was thinking, I've been thinking about this a lot since we, we talked and I, I have really come around to, I actually think 
this makes sense. Like I, so the thing we didn't talk about and that the last thing we didn't talk about in the character creation, <laughs> or at least that we haven't mentioned at all is the supplies. And it's just, it's very short. It's a, that's the last section. And it's, it's basically just in character creation. It's like, listen, your characters have what you have on your person in your pockets, basically. And that's it. And anything else you need to find. And the first few times I read it, I was like, eh, okay, that's weird. And I, I tended to agree with you. Like, oh, that's not really a very interesting thing to like roll on. But then I realized, but it is actually a very huge and interesting problem in the world of this game, which is like supplies are genuinely going to be difficult to get, right? And like being able to accomplish things is hard. And so I don't, I'm not, I would not argue that every conflict role should just be looking for supplies, but I am completely now on board with especially early on if you're GMing, like, I think it makes sense to start introducing some conflict, right? And like, being a little sort of uh, careful about where you do that um, in terms of pacing. Because the thing I will actually completely disagree on is like, I don't think that that's bad storytelling, because like survival horror as a genre is essentially, it is us it is a bad supply roll over and over again but that's the thing is i don't think all of that is bad storytelling i i don't agree with that either i just saw the opening and wanted to take it um but like I, like i so like i don't think that that's bad storytelling i think it could be bad storytelling and i think to me what this is more uh, of is more evidence that like i just think more actual play examples would be really helpful because like uh the the more i thought about this the more i was like you could have that conversation like you said and be like, well, let's figure out what kind of supplies make sense here, etc. But especially early on, like, the downside of ending a scene isn't actually that big of a downside if you're the GM, <laughs> right? Because, like, you're getting some narrative power, thankfully. But it also then, you know, can help introduce, like, here's a conflict and here's a loss, but it's an early loss. So it's maybe not as scary, right? We're not getting so close to death. I totally get, I get the complaint, but I also, I, I, I actually kind of get it in this game. I think like I, I, again, I think you're wrong. I think maybe like an extra paragraph that was like, think about when to do this, right? What kind of conflicts roles as supply things versus whatever, at what point in the game could be helpful, but I'm happy being wrong. Cause I know I'm right. <laughs> I, it's, you know, whatever, not to just return again and again to my thesis as I um, <laughs> literally enunciated that i would be doing um but like this is again this game can be fun as an action adventure game i have done it i've played that game it's it's fun this game is way more interesting than that game and the fact that that game is the game that gets pushed through like at every opportunity that is outside of just like the the plain text as we were saying earlier like frustrates the fuck out of me so I guess I want to hear more about, like, th- this is very interesting to me because what you have narrated is that your game was mostly a lot of silliness. Well, I, that, that some of them. <laughs> Others have been, most of them have been silly to some degree or other. Um, but like I said, that didn't mean we didn't also hit hard horror beats. That didn't mean we weren't explicitly following mysteries in different versions. Um, the one I've played that was much more just straight up action adventure was like, again, a very fun one. I, w- I would actually call that one the one that I'm going to tell a story about later. Um, people were were interested in picking up supplies, were finding weaponry, finding ways to um, 
the, like the big goal of that one was to get to the city, right? Whatever module that is. Yeah. Um, and so it was like, it was, it was a romp through like, you know, like people finding cars. It was, it was very much the game described in this game, right? It was about finding cars, finding transportation, finding gasoline, encountering other survivors, not knowing whether or not to trust them, eventually like having to split off from them. And then finally, like making the way into the city as the last stand happened. And that was a, there was a, a wonderful game in many ways. There's so many. There was never a time when I was like, if they don't find gas here, is that a good end to this scene? Maybe, maybe you could do that. Maybe you could pull that off. Maybe I'm not, you know, maybe that's just not my particular strength as a storyteller or as a GM or facilitator or whatever. But like, to me, there is not an example of a time when saying like, I'm looking to see if there's like gas around. Let's cut to the next scene <laughs> let's cut to the truths because you didn't because the role went bad <clears throat> is a is a the is the right way to tell a story i mean I, I i think the thing i will lightly push back on is i think what you are describing is a type of story that you are not interested in telling right yeah i i don't know that i agree that it's a bad story <laughs> uh like i don't know that like i absolutely think there are people who could tell a really interesting story where the end of the scene is there's no gas in the gas can um People can tell, people can tell stories about anything, and if they're good at storytelling, they can. I'm I'm in the middle of a of the fucking road work by Stephen King. You could tell an interesting story about anything if you're good enough at telling a story. That doesn't mean you need to, <laughs> or should. I don't know why I am planting my flag here. Yeah, you really are. You're, uh, you're so firmly. You're, you're planting it very hard. Uh, and and I guess the only reason I'm pushing back is like because. Uh, essentially the the flag you're planting is I don't care about those types of stories and so this is bad. <laughs> and I just don't I just don't think that's true. Like I absolutely think it's a different type of story than you would be interested in telling. But like I just I, I just disagree that it would be bad. <laughs> that's fair. Um <laughs> I don't I for whatever reason I'm feeling stubborn today. Yeah, no, so. I get it. <laughs> well just uh should we just uh should we just consider that pla- fa- consider that flag planted? I mean and it, move on. You planted it very well. I mean uh, the the <laughs> thing that really like genuinely I, I appreciated this, like this was really fun to think through because I had had a similar idea, like a similar thought of like, that's weird. And then you calling it perception check stuff. I was like, oh, that's why this feels weird. And it, it really just was me spending a lot more time thinking about like how that might work in this game in particular and like why that might be the example that was chosen. Because that's been most of what I've been thinking about over the last five to six days, right? Is really thinking through the actual play stuff and like how the actual play stuff relates to the plain text and sort of the more kind of like mechanics focused uh, text in the game. And so for this one, I just, I came to a place where like, I actually kind of get what, especially because survival horror is like probably one of the more common things people would think of with this, right? It's a game. It's in the space of games, even if it's not a video game, etc. It's mentioned on page two. Exactly. And so it starts to make sense to me, like, oh, I understand this. I still agree with you. I, I wish there were more examples, right? I, I think that the the thing I've really come away with is the possibility space of this game is is wild and is pretty cool. And the like the decisions that players can make 
are actually much more, like I said, kind of crunchier than I sort of expected in terms of how you use your dice and how you use that, how you use your traits and brink and moment in terms of both flavor, but also like, well, wait, but I want to, I want to say how this encounter ends. Wait. (laughs) Um, Mm -hmm. It's just like, I think it's very, very cool. Uh, But like, yeah, I wish there were more examples, essentially. Um, and on the on some level, what's happening here, right, is that I fucking love this game. Yeah. We want we want it to be the best version of it, right? Like I want it. I want it to be the best game ever yeah. written forever. Yeah, I mean, you you put it somewhere, right? Like, I there's some place in your notes where you were basically like, I feel like the second edition of this game could take over the world or something along those lines. Yes, um, <laughs> which I agree with. Like, I I really I think there's like such an incredible game here, and I just. Uh, maybe this is the a, a different way of saying it too, right? Is like I just see a lot of possibility to like make it better and like make it clearer and make the book easier to read and like make people easier to get into it. Which I've also been thinking about since we read GURPS, right? Like, one hundred percent. Like that's always yeah. now in the back of my brain of like, w- where are the parts in this book where if you're a little afraid of GMing or you're a little afraid of RPGs, right? Like, what? What kind of examples would help you maybe understand like, oh, okay, I could put these things together like they could or whatever. All right. So I have another an- another thing that I promise this one won't spiral into a very long, a super long conversation. <laughs> I make no promises. Um, that's fair. So I mentioned earlier when I was reading my thesis. Let me let me reread that again really quickly just to, to refresh everyone, myself included. Uh, this is a game about ritual, not just in the obvious ways. For example, candles, mantras, clear, a clear ending parameter that is enunciated. So we've now actually gone through all those things. So I hope they make more sense to you, uh, my, my dear listener. Um, but in the way it codifies aleatory elements like guttering slash wind. That's in regards to candles, right? We haven't really talked about this a ton, but like... You know, one of the rules is if a candle goes out, the scene ends. Then that means if someone laughs real loud, yeah. this is good. To, this they, is, they could accidentally put out a candle. This is very good to bring up. Uh, yeah, like uh, that's an important rule that I did not state. Yeah, it, uh, when a candle goes out, a scene ends. That means you failed and put it out, or yeah, like you said, wind. Somebody laughs too loudly or too forcefully, etc. The candle's just been burning too long. Exactly. Any number of this, is, and this is what I mean by aleatory elements, like things of pure chance, are codified in the game's rules as ways in which mechanics happen, <laughs> um, uh, and that is it, it's, it, it itself um, a function of ritual, I think, as well. Um, generally speaking, right? Like um, when I say things like uh, the clear ending parameter is enunciated, like that's 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 in truths, right? With the and we are alive. That's in the the fact that the game ends with everyone dying from book one, but it's all or from s- step one. But it's also just you know the easy analogy, right? Is uh, is saying amen, right? That's what this is doing, right? There are a number of different ways to say amen at the end of things in this game. Uh, that's why I tie it back to ritual. Um, the one I think the next one, the next part of the thesis is increasing centralization of the narrative, which is a thing that we have now talked about when, when i first read it we hadn't talked about it at all this is narrative control hinging on dice which uh change over time um so you know just purely abstractly in a, in a game of numbers what happens over the course of 10 candles is the players p- completely run the narrative basically from the first three like f- for the first scene absolutely and then probably mostly for the next three scenes and then slowly as the gm's dice pool gets bigger 
the GM is telling the story. And this, to me, is a, is a function of ritual as well, because, like, I don't know, like, <laughs> to continue with, like, the, the, the Christian metaphor, right? But, like, one of the ways you ritualize life in, into Christianity, right, is, like, you bring, you bring your gospel to somebody and you have them ask questions and you answer those questions based on, you know, the, the Bible or whatever. And slowly over time, as they become more Christian, what they do is become a function of that um, centralized narrative that has already been established. They stop asking as many questions because they have su- sufficient answers, presumably, right? Um, and then just to finish out my thing, and then differing layers of knowledge that are hidden. This is why Brinks are so cool, et cetera, et cetera. I wanted to talk to you about that increasing narrative control. Um, because like I said, the game is mechanically weighted such that the GM tells more of the story as it goes on. This is a function also just of the horror genre, right? It's it's about um, all these choices suddenly start paring themselves down and there's less and less that you can do and more and more the world is simply doing to you. My question for you is that is that... Is that balance? Is that game balance? Do you think? I think, uh, since I've read Troika, yes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and more specifically, since I read Troika and then we talked about it on this podcast, right? Like, this was a thing I, we that I said a lot in that Troika thing of, like, th- this game isn't balanced, I think, is, is how I probably started on my notes. But, like, Troika is very specifically balanced, right? And I think that's I think that's very true here too, right? I think it's it's very intentional and it's very clever. And yeah, I would say it's like it is absolutely sort of it is a balance in terms of like how conflict is balanced, but it's more like how narrative is balanced, right? Yes. Cuz that's really the thing that is so cool about this game is that that's really what you win, right? Like the the winning in sort of other types of maybe more traditional, I guess we could say, kind of like tabletop RPGs, right? Like the thing you win is you get told the cool thing you did, right? Or like maybe you get to narrate part of it, but like you get that you get to like you get the cool stab that the GM tells you about, right? And the orc's head flies off. Cut its clean head exactly. off. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And here, like the thing you win is the, the thing you are trying to win is control of like, I get to say what happens here. So yeah, I, I absolutely think it's like, it is a very specific approach to balance, which is is cool. So I, I think the last thi- like big thing we haven't talked about at all is how the game ends, um, <laughs> which we, we've talked about in broad strokes, which is the, the way the game ends is that all the players die. Mm-hmm. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read a little bit from, from page 66 in this PDF that I'm looking at. Uh, So, How It Must End is the name of this section. When only one candle remains, the last stand begins. There is one final establishing truths phase, but since only one candle remains lit, the only truth spoken is the collective and we are alive. Um, And so, at this point, it is the last scene. And what, uh, what Stephen says is, ideally... That right, like th- this should be like a big thing, right? This should be sort of uh, the the enemies them are attacking or beginning to attack, right? The the characters shouldn't end up having a ton of supplies, right? Things have failed, etc. And that basically, it it is like other conflicts, except 
when a conflict is unsuccessful, so when a player fails a conflict, you do not darken a candle. Instead, the character dies. Um, and basically, you, you keep doing this uh, until all characters are dead. <laughs> um, <laughs> yep. And uh, so when a character dies, you're supposed to do a death narration. So this this is supposed to be a bit of a collaboration between the, the player and the GM. And once you once everyone has gone through and has done their sort of final scene and has their character has met their death and they've done their death narration, the f- final candle at that point is darkened and the GM says, these things are true, the world is dark, and then there is no response from the players. And instead, there is the thing I mentioned earlier that we hadn't talked about yet, which are yes. uh, these final message recordings, which is the other part of character creation. So during character creation, it's like the second to last step or something. You basically use a voice recorder, either on your phone or wherever, and each player records sort of their, their a very short final message. And so you do that at the beginning of the game. And then at the end of the game, the final thing that happens is all of your characters are dead. You have put out the final candle and the GM says these things are true the world is dark there is no response and then the final message recording gets played and that is the end of the game so, so that's the last stand it's a, it's a very smart way to insist on the thing that this game has been insisting on since literally page two or whatever yeah. right that that you're all gonna die here's mechanically how we achieve that um, there's a little thing right like there's we don't have to get into it because we're both annoyed by it, but like there's only one other way to die in this game and it's pure, it's written as purely player choice. Um, so you, you can die prior to that, but you're almost certainly not going to is the way that this game is, is structured. And like, and just to like be, you know, as clear as possible, right? This is the last scene, this last candle. That means the player's dice pool is one. Yeah. T- two at <laughs> most if somebody has a hope, a hope die, right? Yes. If they have, if you have a hope die and you haven't, failed on a brink yep. roll um but yeah generally speaking you are rolling one maybe two dice against the gm's nine yeah um <laughs> so <clears throat> yes remember that thing i mentioned earlier the the story i, w- I wanted to I tell do. yes um this all takes place in the last stand this is the game i was mentioning that was uh you know the, the point or the goal was to get to the city much more action-oriented crowd. Some goofs. One in particular um, was that... Uh, actually, sidebar that I just remembered out of nowhere. Um, this is actually... <laughs> uh, this is part of the weekend that I had um, with uh, my housemates uh, when I lived in San Francisco uh, and their friend that I turned into the role-playing game uh, Welcome to the City, My New Friend. Oh, um, that's fun. It happened. Th- yeah, it was really fun. Um, the... The person who I didn't really know particularly well, we we played, we played ten candles, uh, and he uh, played Kathy uh, from from the cartoon Kathy from the comic strip Kathy Ack. rather, Ack exactly. Um, so there was some goofs in there. When it came to the last stand, again, action oriented we did there was there was some good horror beats as i recall i don't i don't remember exactly what they were but i recall there being moments that genuinely like a little like some chilling things would happen even amidst like gassing up and and go into the city to fucking do whatever kathy was trying to do i know what kathy was trying to do it's important to this part of the story uh kathy was trying to find her boyfriend her fiance i believe um <laughs> we get to the last stand everyone else 
rolls, dies. Um, the thing that didn't come up that I kind of forgot was a mechanic of this game. Also, in the last stand, if you roll a one, you still lose that die from your pool. Yeah. So you have effectively killed everyone else if you roll a one. It's fucking brutal. Yeah, it's great. Um, Kathy rolls. Uh, she's alone. She's still heading into the city. I think she's on foot at this point. The city is just beyond her reach. Her, um, uh, like, it's just like it's at the end of the horizon. Um, there's something attacks her. We roll conflict. I roll zero sixes. The player of Kathy rolls a six on a single die. I was like, oh shit, this is like, this is the moment you want in this game, right? You have narrative control and you succeeded. Or maybe it was, um, sorry, that's not right. The first one, (laughs) giving this away a little bit. The first time I got narrative control, but, uh, the player rolled a six. So I was like, okay, like you're getting, you're like, you know, I'm not going to pull punches here, right? And the player's like, no, 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 go hard. And I was like, okay, like Kathy is like terribly fucked up, like is like reduced to crawling is is how I'll sort of <laughs> frame it, right? So Kathy pushes on, is crawling toward the city. The next roll succeeds and wins narration rights. That rules. Kathy succeeded four times. Jesus Christ. In a row. And one narration rights twice. Wow. So I'm just like, you're like, I think this, the next time I won narration rights, I was like, you are so lost to the world that you don't even know, like, you don't even know, like, what whether what you're seeing is real or not anymore. Like, you are in a full hallucinatory trauma mode. Um, and the player's like, fuck yeah, let's go. And so... When we got to the death scene, when 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 the player of Kathy finally failed after five fucking rolls, the player, even in this instance, and in this instance, basically alone, unless you're darkening a candle, gets, like you said, gets their death narration. They get to sort of tell you what happens. And I was like, I need to know. <laughs> like, I need you to tell me, like, what Kathy gets to after all of this, ins- this crazy trauma, all of this terrible, terrible shit, like how does she go and he was just like oh she's um not to not to <laughs> make a pun but like she's like she's in heaven i was like how do you mean he's like oh well you know she made it i'm like she didn't and he was like no she she made it she's right now she's standing up the world is sparkly and shiny and new and her fiance is there and they're they're hugging and then everything fades to black and i was like this is this is tragic horror. This is so fucking good. Like I'm sad about fucking Kathy from the comic strip Kathy, like having a death hallucination of her fiance while like stuck, you know, a half mile outside of a city that she's spent the last, you know, three or four hours like trying to get to. Like it got me really good, and it you know, it was partially just like. The joy of dice, and also the other sidebar of this, is, like, I consider myself very bad at rolling dice, and that's part of why I like GMing, because whenever whenever dice contests happen, I have a very strong tendency to lose, and this is, like, the perfect and most joyous possible validation of that, like, false perception of myself that I have. Amazing. (laughs) 
Um, yeah, so that's like that's my favorite Ten Candles story is Kathy overcoming death like four times on a nine to one nine against one roll with a one in six chance of success. <laughs> yeah, that that is incredible. <laughs> yeah. Um, so yeah, should we talk about modules? <laughs> yeah. The, the, so the, the that is the book. We we have we have basically reached the end of the the main book. There uh, in the the physical copy that we both have, there's an appendices with some modules, and then in the PDF copy, there's like a second <laughs> appendices. Uh, but yeah, so there's some modules. So why don't we talk about modules? I see a link in front of me. In yeah, in give me just yeah. Let me okay. So the, the basic thing I want to say about modules, like we already said. They're about 200 pages each, or 200 pages, Jesus, uh, this is an 80-page book. Uh, they're about 200 words each, a little bit of flavor description of an area, a little bit of an, a couple areas of note, and a goal. Um, that's the whole thing. You read them at the beginning, they sort of give you your table setting. There's some there's some interesting ones. None of them are, like, extremely stand out to me. The thing that they do, I think, at least the ones in the book, I think I wrote down something to the effect of, and I think you might have said that something to the effect of this, like, they're very good at showing the breadth of this game, um, about, like, showing the the broad variety of things you can do with Ten Candles. They're not maybe as good as I would want as showing the depth of this game, the possible depths of this game, but, like, you know, that's a different thing. Um, will you click on a link for me? Okay. Oh, well, this looks like a module for the game. I wrote a couple modules. Yeah, you did. (laughs) Um, I don't How do you feel about reading? How about cold reading? I feel fine. (laughs) Do you want me to, do you want me to read the first one? Yeah. Yeah. Could you read to the lighthouse? To the lighthouse. The day the lights went out, the fog was so thick. You couldn't tell if the lighthouse had dimmed as well. It just kept getting thicker too. Day by endless night. It moved as if alive. At first, it was a sort of benign malevolence, where the fog walked, car alarms flooded, and gas pumps belched. When they arrived, something changed. The chiffon white wall enrobing half of your small seaside town filled itself with sparks and gutters, an astrolabe of fireflies, a planetarium from which no sound escaped. A half mile east of the townhouse you've emptied of supplies, the fog roils. West, past the county line, a small range stretches into endless plains where other survivors might wait. You have a choice to make. Do you flee west from this small town you've made home, however briefly? Do you investigate east to find what lights illuminate the fog? Uh, And I'm going to read the rest. Areas of interest. A townhouse. And then to the west, uh, a dilapidated cabin, the town of Newberry, the rescue station, and a portable generator. To the east, a gas station flooded and stinking, the treasure the fog seeks, the ship of Theseus, the ocean welcoming. And the goals to the west confront them and make it out in the light, and to the east uncover the history of this town and learn how to overcome it. That hey, this was, is that cool. Was a, that was a fun one to read. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> um... I was kind of, um, uh, I, was, I was thinking a lot about the John Carpenter film The Fog, and also um, uh, The Shadow Over Innsmouth, the H.P. Lovecraft story. Those were kind of my, my touchstones for this one. And uh, I just, I kept thinking about those, but mostly The Fog, because I'm always thinking about The Fog, because The Fog is a fantastic movie that more people should watch. Um, this is cool. I, I like the choice stuff, like the... Uh... That I I think there were some modules that that had something like that, uh, if I remember correctly. But 
most of them did not. But I, I like the that that's cool. And they they're so different, right? Like to the west is the town of Newberry and a portable generator. To the east is the <laughs> ship of Theseus and the ocean welcoming. Yes. It's fucking great. Yeah, and that was that was thank you for hitting that cuz that's exactly the the thing I wanted to like cuz part of the reason I wanted to write this was cuz I wanted to try out my own sort of thesis here, right? Like the, the, not the broad thesis, but like the idea that like the modules are good at showing the breadth, but not quite as good at showing the depth. And I was like, okay, I want to write a module that is replayable um, by different people in different ways. Like that explicitly, explicitly the same group of people could play it twice and have completely different experiences. And that's true of all of them, obviously, but like I wanted to make that a core tenet of Mm -hmm. this. Thus, you know, having sort of two settings built into one, um, two, two threats also, um, that may or may not turn out to be the single threat, depending on the play, right? Um, and, and I wanted to just sort of dive into the more cosmic horror possibilities that the game presents, and that I feel like it doesn't do quite as much to emphasize throughout modules or, or, or actual play, um. So I just wrote it myself, and I thought that was—I thought it would be Hell fun. Yeah. <laughs> um, I'm gonna read the second one because this is a thing I've been thinking about for like five years. Okay. This is, this is the other module I wrote. It's called "Sealing the World." Most claim the darkness came out of nowhere. One day it wasn't. Ten days ago it was. Some though, some shouted from the rooftops. Some shouted that it was only the long foreseeable conclusion of the slow death we had been living for years of the observable erosion of the life-being of our world, of friendship. Shouting was very unfriendly of them, and so they were dealt with, by the darkness made form, officially. The people of this world now travel in threes, hoping that the dying embers of friendship will glow just bright enough to keep them at bay, because the darkness, whether it's skitters or hulks, is real, and it wants you to join it. You three, though, you just got here. Your assignment is simple. Find the door out of this world, shut it, and swallow the key. Maybe the real heroes will show up one day and bring back the light of friendship. That's not for you. Areas of note. An island beach, an, an island beach reached by rowboat. An overrun city where vendors still vend. The scene of a curious trial. And a legally distinct version of the castle from Beauty and the Beast. <laughs> Goal, this boat runs on happy faces. I'm not going to do a Donald Duck voice. This is Kingdom Hearts. I did it, Kingdom Hearts. <laughs> oh my god. Okay. That makes a lot of sense why I was just completely and totally confused and baffled by all of this. Uh, okay. I was like, this boat runs on happy faces is clearly a reference to a thing. I just do not know what it is. And it's the fucking Kingdom Hearts, of course. Okay. <laughs> um, I'm very, I, very happy for you. Congratulations. <laughs> I think that I first, okay. The part that's not a joke is I think there is genuinely something that you could do to bring, uh, like, some, some of the Kingdom Hearts uh, affect into Ten Candles and have a really good time with it. Um, th- this isn't it. <laughs> um, but, like, there's there's something there, and I've been tr- sort of trying to unlock it for a long time, and I just haven't p- played Ten Candles in a while. Um, I mean, there's some, there, there's some banger lines in here, for sure. Uh, Thank you. I I think Kingdom Hearts is real silly, so that part doesn't really do much for me. But uh, the other thing is, I realized uh I don't think I've talked about Kingdom Hearts once on this podcast. That's a fucking a a triumph. You're right. I agree. Yeah, (laughs) I agree. Yeah. No, I'm doing the Lord's work. You're right. 
just wanted to let everyone who's listening out there know, if you don't already, that I'm a fucking Kingdom Hearts weirdo. That's true. You have to know that about me. It's true. Thankfully, I'm not a weirdo about anything. <laughs> uh, um, do you want to? Should we announce the next one? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I guess it's just any <laughs> anything else we want to do about Ten Candles, like any any summary thoughts. I mean, I, we we think this is cool. We we wish the book was a little different, but we really like the game. Is I guess my summary. A hundred percent. Yeah. Um, give me an index, please. Yeah. But like, genuinely, I mean, we we we've, we've said it about other things, but like, r- really and truly, I think Ten Candles is a very specific game, right? So like, you 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 want to you want to you have to be in a place where you are wanting to tell a very sad and tragic story, right? And it could be fun, but like, again, everyone dies at the end. But it like it's I think there's a lot to like think about, and there's a lot of fun to have if you play. Um, it, I, I think it's it's really very impressive. I'm actually that doing this has made me super excited for um, the Kickstarter one I backed, Gather Children of the Evertree. Um, yeah, I'd like to look at some of Dewey's other games. I never, I've never even like read a summary. Yeah, <laughs> um, and I've I've heard good things about To Serve Her Wintry Hunger, and like I said, I, I skimmed it at some point. But um, but anyway, yeah. So what are we what what are we doing next? Um, yeah, I, I know I told you a while ago that I had all of our, the rest of our things picked out. I ended up pivoting <gasps> on this you one. Um, oh my gosh. I did have it picked out. I just realized it wouldn't be a very good conversation oh, okay. and I'm not going to tell you what it is because it still might be a bad conversation that we do Great. have. But I, you know, I've, I'm, I, when they announced that Waypoint was shutting down, I got a little in my feelings. Yeah, that's sad. Um, and since they have since shut down and now, you know, the crew there is over at remap. Um, and that's cool. But, you know, one of the things that made me very sad was like, there was an era of time when I was like freelancing or just, just after I had stopped freelancing, but had admitted to myself where waypoint was like the place I was most excited to pitch to as a, as a person who likes to write stuff or liked to, I don't know. It's, I still do, but I don't do it very much. So I thought we could revisit a couple of articles on, over on Waypoint. Do you want to click the first link? Yeah, there's three links that I've been told to not click. Oh, fun. Oh, fun, fun. Yeah. I was just thinking about this series. So I have clicked on a link to uh, vice.com. Uh, it is the letter from the editor for At Play in the Carceral State, which was a, a week-long series that Waypoint did um, by Austin Walker. I, I was literally thinking about this this week of content like a few weeks ago. Um, that's wild. Um, so yeah, the other two links are just uh, the specific articles that deal with tabletop games, specifically in prisons. Um, most of the most of the content was about video games. There were a video game criticism site primarily, um, but yeah. So we'll be reading the editorial um, and then dragons in the Department of Corrections about uh, basically how folks. Play D and D in prison yeah, in, a, in a maximum um, security prison in particular. Yeah, and then uh, the other one is how inmates play tabletop RPGs in prisons where dice are the are where dice are contraband. And this is like sort of a companion article. They're both by Elizabeth DeClear. That is it's sort of just a rundown of like how people get randomized elements into prison or or make them in prison. Um, in order to, again, primarily focus on Dungeons and Dragons, in order to play Dungeons and Dragons um, while while locked up. Cool. 
yeah, more of a more of a social theory sort of thing than we often do here on uh, on the matter of systems. But yeah, I was like thinking about how much it sucked that they closed down Waypoint, and I was like, oh yeah, they did that thing on on uh, on prison and D and D a while ago. I wonder if that's a, a useful thing to talk about. And the more I thought about it, the more I thought about it. Like, yeah, of course it is. Of course, it's always. I mean. It's always useful to talk about how um, we should abolish prisons. Yes, absolutely. Um, <laughs> let, let it be known that is the official stance of Atmos. <laughs> yeah, it, very, very easily. Um, perhaps even <laughs> a kinder thing than I might say that I might say in public than what I might say in Correct. private. Um, you know, uh, prison support has been very important to me personally over the last couple of years. Um, I'm, not, I'm not as involved as I want to be. But, you know, I have a thing at my job where, like, we sell books um, that get sent to a project called the Prisoner's Literature Project that sends them to prisoners as as requested. And I have, you know, been tracking it. I think we're somewhere over the last, like, two years around, like, $30,000 or $40,000 worth of books sold Whoa. that just get sent to prisoners. That's impressive. Yeah. Yeah, it's like it genuinely like a three or four or five hundred dollar box every two weeks we send out there, um, which is like, <laughs> frankly, one of the things that keeps me alive when I <laughs> when I'm less inclined to be <laughs> over the last couple sure. of years um, is just like being able to do that work uh, and you know make sure that prisoners get great books that and uh, that range from you know things that they are explicitly requesting you know. If you're ever sending books to prisoners, things like the People's History of the United States, dictionaries, Spanish to English dictionaries, stuff like stuff like that, um, stuff that can help them um, better understand the world and also um, better able to read because so many of them just literally can't um, because of structural uh, fuck America issues. But also, I get to do a little little you know. We got a decent amount of shelf space. So, you know, I've gotten to send out copies of, like, Do You Dream of Terra 2 to prisoners. And I, you know, I don't know if any of them have, like, fallen in love with it. But, like, it's a book that I love. I think it's a book that's extremely well written. You know, could be could be hard. But, like, it's ne- it's neat to be able to say, like, I, I have gotten books that I truly personally love into the hands of folks who would never be able to access them. And I, and I hope that's um, great for them. But anyway, um... <laughs> I will also say, just to, to sort of round out our, our little thing here, I think Elizabeth DeClear might be a little more liberal than you or I, BW, um, just having revisited these articles. Sure. Uh, they're, they're not really an abolish prisons uh, kind of vibe. Um, Which is fine. I mean, we, uh, we know, fine. like, yeah, I, that that will likely not be no, the focus I, of our episode, right? Because, like, uh, for one, I'm I am I, I am not well read enough to speak into a microphone and have it be recorded about prison abolition. <laughs> unfortunately, uh, I fully support it and am absolutely an abolitionist, and also am not an expert in any way, shape, or form. Uh, there there are people who have done that work and are doing that work, and I. Uh, have supported them in the past financially when I was able to, uh, but I don't like being around people, so <laughs> I stay home. <laughs> um, uh-huh. But yeah, I am I am very excited about this. I think that uh, I think this is a cool this is a, a cool way to to end our first season in terms of the the final theory episode. So that's fun. I'm I'm glad. Also, it's going to be kind of a light lift, frankly. So 
So maybe one of these last like six episodes won't be three hours long. No, I, yeah, I mean that. The, yeah, because the last one will be seventeen hours long. Because uh, everybody should know what the game is at this point. It's gonna be brutal. It's gonna be a brutal record. We're gonna need to set aside three days. Um, yeah. But yeah, this is cool. Uh, well, we should let people go. Speaking of length, so hey, B, where can people find you on the internet? Um, you can, you can check me out over at B Gabriel on Twitter. Um, B Gabriel also on itch. If you were at all interested in my description of my game that I made about, I didn't actually describe the game that I made. I'm just realizing that you did, now. but we'll, we should put a link in the show notes to your itch. Sure. Or you just go to bgabriel.itch.io. Yeah, uh, it's free. Everything there is free. I don't sell shit because I steal too much to sell shit. Um, how about you, BW? <laughs> uh, right now, I'm not posting a lot of things on the internet, but uh, you can go to Instagram.com slash bakery slash workshop. It's three words all spelled out, bakery slash workshop. And I, you know, uh, nominally or notionally weave and make pots and bake bread. I haven't been doing a ton of that lately, but uh, yeah, that's it. We did it. Thanks did for it. listening, everybody. <laughs> Thanks for hanging out for three hours, everybody. Ten candles is worth it. Right? Mm-hmm. Right? You, 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 you agree with me, right? <laughs>